Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we're playing it, we'll be talking about it. Today, we are recording on November 4th, 2018. I cannot believe it's already November. I've been seeing fucking Black Friday ads in my email inbox already, and I'm not prepared for it to be the end of the year, but that's beside the point. My name is Corey Motley. I am a staff writer at GameCritics.com. I'm also 50% of this show. And joining me as always is Brad Galloway. He is the editor of Game Critics. How are things, Brad? Things are pretty good, but I have to ask you a question, Corey. I know um, through the magic of podcast recording that you are hungry right now, that you need food. <laughs> so let me ask you. I made some breakfast this morning. Now you tell me if this sounds good. I took a bunch of um, honey ham. Sliced it up nice and thin, fried that up, dumped about four or five eggs on top of it because I was splitting it up between the family. So not just for one person, but for like three people. <laughs> Cooked that up into kind of like an omelet, took it out, put a little bit of cheddar cheese on top, a little bit of salt and pepper. And then for a finishing touch, I did drizzle a little bit of maple syrup on top to give you kind of the sweet and savory. Does that sound good to you or does that sound gross? Uh, it sounds good. I'm a little apprehensive about eggs because I'm kind of back and forth on eggs, but it sounds good. And also, you're an asshole because I'm starving to death, and now you're, like, describing this delicious food you made, and now I'm, like, even more hungry. So I'm just <laughs> going to put down my headphones. I'm going to go eat, and I'll just let you take care of the rest of the show. How does that sound? All right. We're going to put That's fine. <laughs> I, will, I will solo, and whenever it comes to your turn, I will just make, like, a wah-wah-wah sound, like a Charlie <laughs> Brown sort of a thing, and then we'll see how it goes. All right. Or, deal. or okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> or what? <laughs> oh, nothing. Or, or. Uh, we can actually pause and get a food if you need to. I mean, if you're going to pass out of like you know uh, hypoglycemia, <laughs> let's 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 intervene in that and get you some food. No, I don't think I'm in danger of like death or passing out. I'm just being uh, a wimp about being hungry. So here we are. All right. Well, if you're okay to power through, I say let's power through, and then we'll get you something delicious at the end of it. Yes. All right. Well, we can. Let's do proper podcasting. I'll get some food afterwards. All will be well. Uh, before we jump into games proper chat, we're going to do a little bit of a news section, if you will. Uh, we don't do like news often, but um, we talked about this before on the show, so we're going to kind of revisit this um, about the PlayStation Classic console that Sony's putting out. Um, they announced, I don't know, like a month or two ago that they're putting out very much like the NES Classic and the SNES Classic. They're putting out a PlayStation 1 Classic console that is a small version of what a PlayStation 1 looks like. And it's going to have 20 games on it. I think when they announced it, they announced like five of the games. And then about a week ago or so, since our last recording, they unveiled the entire list of all 20 games that are going to be on it. So Brad and I are going to do a fun little exercise where we're just going to go through the list of games that, that are coming out on it. We're going to say if we think it was a good idea to have it on it, a bad idea, if we've played it, if we even know what the game is or what have you. Um, so that's going to be our little opening, our little icebreaker activity for the podcast today. How does that sound, Brad? I love the idea of an icebreaker, although I was going to suggest like a trust fall, but I guess we could do this kind of a thing <laughs> instead. So that's fine. I'm, I'm down. Let's do it. All right. Well, these are in alphabetical order, so they're not ranked in order of best to worst or what have you. Um, so we're just going to dive in. Uh, the first game is Battle Arena Toshinden. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Toshin Den, yes. Have you ever played this? I have never even... Okay, I gotta be completely honest with you. I have not even heard of, like, half the games on this list, which is weird, because I had a PlayStation 1, but 
I guess even back then, maybe it's due to like blockbuster videos limitations because I was mostly renting games at the time that they didn't either have all these games or I was too young to be exploring some of these games or something like that. So full disclosure, there are a lot of games on this list that I don't even know what they are. So, uh, and this is one of them. So I have, I don't even know what this is. So I will let you have the floor for it. Uh, this is one of the launch games for the PS1. I saw this about six months uh, before the PS1 even launched. There was a game expo here in Seattle and I got into it and I was, so this is like, you got to remember, this is like some of the first like console 3D that people are seeing at the time. Um, it's a fighting game. I think it comes from Tamsoft, who eventually went on to make some other stuff. Uh, but this had this kind of like a, a weird collection of characters. There was like an old guy with claws. There was like a dominatrix S&M chick. There was like a couple of, uh, you know, Ryu Ken sort of like sword fighting guys. Um, but this was like in real 3D where you could, you know, your character models are 3D. You could dodge into and out of the background. You could roll around and everybody had um, a couple special moves and then like one big finisher superpower. Um, I think the characters were probably made of like four triangles each. Uh, so, the, you know, at the time, I got to be honest with you. The first time I saw this, I thought it looked fucking mind-blowingly amazing because <laughs> it just you had never seen anything like that before. It was the first time you had seen anything 3D like in that in that sense on a home console. Um, I thought it looked phenomenal. And I, uh, I played this at the expo. It was the first game that I bought for my PS1. I played the shit out of it, beat it with everybody, unlocked everything. I thought it was great. Uh, but I don't think this will hold up in any sense. I think it'll look <laughs> awful. I think it'll control awful. I think the sound effects will be awful. I think it'll look like a real garbage piece of, of shit, and it'll be terrible. Oh, uh, no. But back then, I mean, considering the time that it was released, it was mind-blowing. It was eye-melting. It was crazy. So <laughs> It is... Oh, always fascinating to me that because video games has like in the grand scheme of things video games have been around for such a short amount of time how quickly the technology has like leapt among all the games and the consoles that even something that had come out like i don't know i don't know when this came out like 20 years ago or something that it would that it looks like absolute garbage compared to stuff we have now Oh yeah, it looks worse than even than even the lowest budget games these days. So I will be. I mean, it's like an interesting artifact, and if you know the history or you know just understanding its place, um, I think Sony even tried to make some of these characters um, kind of mascots for a while. Like uh, one of the lady, the S and M lady from this, um, she had like a, you know like a bustier and a ponytail or something, and black leather and a whip, and you know they tried <laughs> to make her like the face of Sony for a while, and that obviously did not fly for very long. <laughs> Um, but it was in that era where they had a purple guy that was like named Polygon Man, where he was just made of different polygons. Nobody understood that. That didn't click. They tried to do Crash Bandicoot for a while. That was a little bit more successful. Uh, but the Crash games kind of petered out. It was Parappa for a while. Like Sony just could not settle on a mascot. And I remember this, uh, I don't, I do not remember what her name was, but that S&M lady was, had a brief moment in the spotlight of being the Sony mascot, which was, when you think about it now, what a fucking bizarre choice. Yes, we're going to take the S&M dominatrix from this fighting game, and that's going to be the voice of our company. Like, what? Like, no. So, anyway, interesting, interesting bit of history there. Uh, cool Borders 2. Corey, did you ever play Cool Borders? I didn't. I'm aware of the franchise. I mean, obviously, it's like a snowboarding franchise, but I don't think I ever played any of them. So yet again, I've actually heard of this one, though, but I, I can't offer anything, whether I think this is a good or bad choice for the PlayStation Classic. 
Um, again, and is, is probably going to be the story of most of these games. I don't think it'll hold up. It's probably going to look like ass, <laughs> control like ass. I didn't like it back then. I was not much of a racing guy or a snowboarding guy, so I think I rented it for like one weekend, and I'm like, I'm done. So I got no attachment to this. I'm kind of surprised to see it show up, honestly, so I don't care about this. Uh, what's the next one there? Uh, Destruction Derby is the next one, which I also don't know what this is. I feel like... Uh, I don't know how I feel old, I guess, which is, or maybe young. I feel young. I don't know. I just don't, I don't know what some of these games are, and I don't know what this is. Uh, this is, again, I think it was, if it was not a launch title, it came out almost very, very, very close to when the PS1 launched. It's exactly what you think it is. It's a bunch of cars <laughs> driving around in an arena, crashing into each other. And it was amazing at the time because they could get damaged. Like, that was kind of a new thing where, like, you would actually see the car, like, deform and wreck, and pieces would fall off, and you could drive around anywhere within this little destruction you know, within this arena like the idea of driving anywhere you wanted to within this closed space was kind of a new idea at the time and you know as far as consoles go like of course everything i say please take a grain of salt uh, with this and remember uh, i'm speaking only of consoles i'm not speaking of pc because we're inevitably going to get a, an email from a pc guy going oh that's not true we did this like you know a year ago on pc you guys okay <laughs> i get it okay i get it pc did everything first and did everything better fine I'm just talking about PS1. So on the PS1 or on home consoles, moving a car in any direction in that way and having those cars get destroyed was pretty, like, a big step forward. But I don't think anybody's going to play this for more than five seconds. Um, Final Fantasy VII, clearly you've heard of this. Have you ever played it? I have played a lot of it. I don't think I ever beat it, but I, I think this was at a point in my life where I had friends who lived across the street in my childhood home who played it a lot. And I think I played some of it. I watched them play most of it, though, because they were really into Final Fantasy. Um, I mean, obviously, this is, like, I don't know, the one to beat on the PlayStation Classic console because Final Fantasy VII is, it's, I mean, how do you even describe it? It is the, like, quintessential RPG that everybody knows and loves. So whether it holds up or not is maybe up for debate. Um but this is, like, the one. So, I mean, it seems pretty no-brainer to me that they would put it on here. Yeah, agreed. I mean, this is what a lot of the PlayStation 1 success was built off of because of the cutscenes at the time, which were, like, un, un, incomparable. I mean, everybody was like, oh, my God, look at this fucking graphics. This is fucking ridiculous. This is, <laughs> you know, and for a while we were like, that can't be what the game looks like. Is that what the game looks like? We don't know. No, it's just a cutscene. But at the time, it was so new. Like, we weren't even sure if that's what the game looked like. What was it going to ultimately be? And then once we figured out, oh, okay, this is just a movie that you watch. Okay, that's different. But still, it looks fucking bonkers. Holy shit, this is amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, I played Final Fantasy back in the day. I mean, I'm sure people will play it today just because it's Final Fantasy. I mean, they have a legion of fans all to their own. Um, so, I'm, you know, of course, they would put it on there. This was very seminal to the PS1. I don't think I would play it again. Um, and I'm not sure that people even like it all that much now that so much time has passed by but i think a lot of people still have attachment to it you still see cloud and his buster sword all over the place you still see sephiroth show up all over the place so i mean this this one i think is probably one of the the stars of the collection obviously so yeah i mean that that's a good choice um grand theft auto now i didn't i gotta be honest i i think this is the is it grand theft auto 3 or is it the original grand theft auto do you know it's, by the, it's the original because grand theft auto 3 was playstation 2 Oh, okay. So this is the top-down sprite-based. Oh, did you ever play the original Grand Theft Auto? I did, believe it or not. Um, Grand Theft Auto, and I don't know if everybody knows this, but the original Grand Theft Auto is top-down, like you just said. It's not. 
Because Grand Theft Auto uh, 3 really kind of revolutionized open world games in that respect, um, for better or for worse, because a lot of games basically copied and pasted that style of gameplay and have been using it even up to this day. But the original Grand Theft Auto was only top-down. It was mostly you driving around the city, uh, running over people, running into drug deals, um, stealing cars, running around the city, shooting. It was very difficult to play because of the top-down um, the top-down uh, screen. And whenever I remember when Grand Theft Auto 3 came out, they had a bunch of different camera options in it, and they actually put a top-down camera in Grand Theft Auto 3 so you could play it like the classic Grand Theft Autos if you wanted to. Um, but I have played this. I don't know if it'll hold up. I think it's worth going back to for its, like, sort of, like, nostalgic novelty. Um, but it seems appropriate that it would be on the PlayStation Classic. I think this is going to blow a lot of people away because I honestly don't know how many people know that this even exists, you know. Um, I have played it. I, I did not like it at the time. I thought it was very <laughs> difficult to play. You would always get shot from off screen and just controlling and seeing things was really hard. And I just thought it was really frustrating and... Not not very fun. Good idea, but not very fun. Um, so I think as an artifact, like you said, like as an artifact, interesting. And I think a lot of people's eyes will be open and be like, "Holy shit, is this where, <laughs> is this where all this started? Oh my god! Like this is so much different." But I kind of doubt it's gonna be that fun to play. I know we sound like broken records or repeating MP3s on this podcast by saying that over and over. But uh, Intelligent Cube. Do you know Intelligent Cube? I do know this, and I know this. Be I don't know if I ever played it. I think my only capacity of playing this was in the classic PlayStation Magazine demo discs that would come out with the magazine. Because oh, I remember, yes. Yeah, oh, yes, back in the day, back yes, in the day. Yes, um, I remember this being in one of. And for those who don't know, maybe we should like talk about this briefly for a second. Um, PlayStation Magazine was obviously anything and everything PlayStation, a monthly magazine back in the day. It would come with a demo disc, um, I think every month. And for a long time, the demo discs, it wasn't just you you put the disc in and you play one or two games. They would have like 30 games on them. Um, or maybe it was when you bought the console. The demo disc had like 30 games and then the PlayStation Magazine's demo disc would have like 10 games or something, but like... Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, it was like you got a sample of a lot of games. It wasn't just one or two, and I remember um, Armored Core being a big one, and um, and Intelligent Cube also was a big one. It was just like this kind of 3D third-person puzzle game where you're walking around this grid, and these cubes are like turning over with every move, and there's a way you can make the cubes dissolve and you have to dodge them so you don't get squished and you have to make sure they don't gang up on you and push you off the map. Um, I played it a little bit in the demo disc, but I don't think I ever played the actual game itself. Oh my God. This, this is one of the ones, like if you were going to buy the PS one retro classic or whatever, like to me, like this game alone makes it worth buying the entire thing because <laughs> this game is fucking fantastic. I played the fuck out of this game when it came out. Just like you said, you play like a person on a weird kind of board and these blocks roll towards you. And so it's a puzzle game because you have to make blocks disappear. At the same time, you have to not get crushed by the blocks. And at the same time, it's also got this weird meta narrative of like, it's almost like this person being crushed by like society or like, uh, you know, like the machine of government in the world kind of crushing down on a single person and them trying to fight back and resist it. Uh, so, like, it works on many levels. I think the graphics are probably pretty rough these days, but that's okay, because I think it's still basically just about cubes and a small little guy running around. I think it'll be all right. Um, but very unique, very different kind of a puzzle game. I love this one. I loved it so much. You play it as a man, 
if you beat the campaign as the man, you get to play it as a woman. If you beat the campaign as a woman, you get to play it as a dog. And the dog, after you beat it as a dog, you get, like, the true ending. And I, I loved this game. It was so amazing. And they did not make many of this game, so it became extremely hard to find um, at that time. There was no download. There was no PSN store. There was none of that. That didn't exist yet. And so you had to just go and buy a game on a disc, and they did not make very much of this one. This one is extremely rare, very hard to come across, and as such, many people didn't know about it and didn't play it. So... I'm thrilled to see this one on there. I think this one will hold up. I would strongly recommend that anybody um, who's picking up the PS1 retro or if you just are just interested about games from that era, this is one of the ones to play. I love this game. It is brilliant and amazing. Excellent. Um, well, next up is Jumping Flash. And I've heard the name of this game, but to be honest, I don't know what it is. This is another one of the first-generation PlayStation 1 games. This is another one like Toshin Den that I played about six months before the console came out. This was another one that will, like it made you like shit your pants because it was so amazing <laughs> when you played it. Um, you play as a robotic rabbit, and you are in open levels, like 3D open environments, which at the time was still ex extremely new. Uh, but the thing is, is you can jump, and so you would be on the ground... You would jump up, and this robotic rabbit could do, like, a double and triple jump. You could actually unlock, if you played the game multiple times, you could unlock up to, like, like a sextuple jump. And the ability to jump and then see the whole world scale down as you got higher up above it was fucking, like, oh, my fucking God. What is even going on? I don't even understand. Is Am I even alive right now? I don't get it. This is crazy. Just melted your fucking brain. And so the, being able to, like, jump higher and higher and higher and then come back down and just interact in the world in that space in that way was really amazing. Uh, this was like probably the number one game I wanted to play after seeing seeing it, and it was one of the first things that I bought for the PS1. I mean, it's rough. Graphics are extremely simple. Again, I think every character is made out of like four polygons, and Collision is a little rough. But I think just seeing it and seeing what this was about is pretty cool. The rabbit is a pretty cool character, and... I just think the jumping is really fun. I played this actually last year. I fired <laughs> it up on the Vita? Or was it the PSP? It's available on one of the Sony handles. I don't remember which one. It might be the PSP. Uh, fired it up last year. And it's still really fun just to jump and do crazy jumps like that. So it's not it's not something to really write home about. You can beat the whole thing in like two hours. But it is it does still have some appeal. That's good. Um, at least it holds up. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting artifact, and the rabbit's cute. Who, who doesn't like a robot rabbit? Um, Metal Gear Solid, I think I've heard of this game. Corey, have you ever heard of Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid? And is this a thing? What is it about? Uh, yes, Metal Gear. So despite Metal Gear Solid, um, or I should say Metal Gear, debuting on the Nintendo NES, uh, Metal Gear Solid is, uh, at least I think, where a lot of people... Um, entered into the Metal Gear oh, franchise. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, for sure. For sure. Certainly where I did. And at the time, I remember, like, not being that impressed with it because the camera is weird. Like, a lot of people don't remember, or maybe they do, and I'm just being, um, I don't know, I'm putting words in people's mouths, but the camera in the original Metal Gear is extremely weird. It's not, you don't have full camera control. You just kind of, like, shift the camera back and forth. It has almost an isometric view for a lot of the... Uh, levels, but it's like tight isometric, so it's yeah, hard to see yeah, what's yeah. going on around you. And people like this is one of those things where it's like that Metal Gear Solid is obviously a classic. Like it, it kind of it, much like Grand Theft Auto Three, it kind of revolutionized a lot of how we games went going forward. But a lot of people forget that the original Metal Gear Solid was incredibly rough. Like it, 
it had a lot of voice acting, it had a lot of acting, it had a lot of writing, it had all these things, um, cool cutscenes and what have you, but the gameplay was kind of rough. Like, the camera was weird, the movement was difficult, um, the difficulty itself, pretty harsh, uh, depending on how you play it. Um, but I, th I st obviously, I think it's a good idea for it to be on here because it is... I mean, it is a classic, absolutely. It deserves to be on the console. Um, I would argue, perhaps, that the remake of it, uh, Metal Gear Solid The Twin Snakes on GameCube, which you can probably find on some kind of PC emulator or something if you really want to play it these days if you don't have a GameCube. Um, I think that version is better. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, because it looks better, it has a lot of improvements with camera control and stuff. Um, but, yeah, Metal Gear Solid, it's a classic. Of course, it's going to be on the console. Yeah, I mean, I... I loved this back in the day. You are absolutely correct about all the roughness and the camera weirdness. And, you know, that's a big reason why the radar was so important. The radar in Metal Gear, you needed it because you couldn't see shit around you. Like, you needed <laughs> to know where enemies were because it was basically, like, impossible to play it blind. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, this kicked off the whole, I mean, the, the dynasty of Metal Gear. This is what really made Kojima a star. Uh, this is, like, historically extremely important on many levels in terms of design, in terms of him being an auteur, in terms of like branding, in terms of just so many, so many things um, came from Metal Gear Solid. Uh, there's no doubt that this deserves to be on the disc. And I, I never actually played Twin Snakes because when Twin Snakes came out, I didn't want to replay this game. I think I had probably replayed it recently before that. And I'm like, I don't need to play this again. And <laughs> I think that Twin Snakes does actually change because you can do a first person shooting mode in Twin Snakes, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. And I, yeah, and I think it really trivializes a lot of the boss battles. When you put it into that mode, it makes it a lot easier. Like, I remember fighting Revolver Ocelot for the first time. Doing it uh, top-down, people were saying it was, like, night and day, like, so much easier than it was when you were... Um, or, I'm sorry, doing it first-person was way easier than doing it top-down, which makes sense to me. So, I think that it does change the quality of the game. I mean, I would recommend that people play the vanilla version first, just to get a sense of where it came from. But yeah, I mean, regardless, this definitely deserves to be on uh, the disc for sure. Uh, next one is Mr. Driller from Namco. Have you ever played Mr. Driller? I have not. This is another game that I've heard the name of, but I don't really know what it is. This is a weird one because I like Mr. Driller a lot. Um, it's a puzzle game where you play as a little guy and you wait for it drill <laughs> your your way down. So you have to drill down, but the the trick of it is. When you drill down, if you undermine the support of the dirt and rocks above you, it will crash down, but it always gives you like three seconds. So if you drill straight down, the stuff will eventually come crashing down on you. So you have to kind of be really tricky about like, I'm going to drill down for three seconds, but then I'm on a zigzag left and then that stuff will come crashing down. It'll miss me. It won't crush me. But then I got to go back the other way because now the stuff I'm drilling under is going to crush me. And so it's kind of this like back and forth of like, you want to get deep as possible because that's how you get points. But at the same time, you got to be really cognizant of what's above you because it will fall down and crush you if you're not careful with how you're drilling. Um, you also collect points. You get little power-ups. I think you have to also collect oxygen capsules to keep your run going. I mean, it's a great game. I think it's a great puzzle game. I'm just a little puzzled by it because I never thought it was that popular. Um, I don't think many people even really know about it. And I don't really think it has a good brand synchronicity with PlayStation 1. Like, I don't think a lot of people associate it with PS1. I think most people think of it as being maybe arcade, or maybe I think it came on the 3DS later, I believe, or it just doesn't say PlayStation to me, so I'm kind of wondering why. But it's solid. This game will be fun regardless. I mean, this is one that will 100% hold up. It'll be a good a good play. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a waste, that's for sure. <laughs> um, 
We've actually talked about Oddworld Abe's Odyssey a couple times in the last few episodes, ironically, because I said that it was very similar to um, The Way and a couple other games you talked about. Have you ever played the actual OG Abe's Odyssey? I think um, much like Intelligent Cube, I think I played a demo of it on a demo disc, but I never played the actual game. Yeah, they demoed the hell out of this. This was like <laughs> a big game on PS1 for a while. Um, the guy behind this is named Lauren Lanning, and he is at Oddworld. I met him a couple times. He's a really nice guy. And this this was like one of the like marquee games of the PS1 for a while because it had some voice acting. It had really smooth graphics that were 2D. It's like a 2D platform puzzler. But it looked really like very captivating. Like It didn't look like anything else on the PS1 at that time. So it had a lot of personality. I think Abe, the main character, a lot of people liked him. I didn't like him, but a lot of people liked him. And it was just a really challenging, each screen is a single puzzle and you got to work your way through that. Uh, but very difficult, a lot of try and die, a lot of just really, uh, just it was really frustrating to me. I didn't care for it. So um, I don't know if people will like it these days, but you know, there you go. There's that. Uh, original Rayman. You play Rayman, Corey? Uh, I haven't. I'm well aware of what it is and it's even an existing franchise to this day, but I've never played any of them. Uh, man, I, you know, a lot of the more recent Raymans people really like, like Rayman Origins, I think. I can't remember what they are. I'm not a Rayman fan at all because he is French and I don't like French things and I don't like French games. <laughs> um, I just really dislike the French um, aesthetic and the way that their humor works and like a lot of their art design. I just don't care for it. Uh, this is a perfect example of that. Like it does not appeal to me visually, which I really, I, I, if I can't get past the visuals, I can't play your game. And I'm just not a fan. Um, I don't think this one is a great game, but I'm, it's colorful. It's cute. Maybe people will like it. But I definitely think that the newer Rayman games are much more polished and fun. So now you must have an opinion. I'm sure. I'm sure you have an opinion on Resident Evil Director's Cut. Pray tell, dude. What do you think of this one? Uh, yeah, because Resident Evil is perhaps... Resident Evil 2, to be precise, is the first game I ever played whenever I bought a PlayStation 1, or when my dad, I should say, bought me a PlayStation 1. Um, so that was my first sort of intro experience. And it's only because I had played Resident Evil uh, Director's Cut on other friends' PlayStation 1s or on Sega Saturn, because if I remember correctly... Resident Evil debuted on Sega Saturn, and then the director's cut is what came to PlayStation 1 after um, the PlayStation 1 came out. So I played some of the original on Saturn, and then I played director's cut on friends' PlayStation 1s, and then I bought Resident Evil 2 when I bought my, when I bought my own PlayStation 1. Um, I'm kind of sort of surprised that they went with putting Resident Evil director's cut on the, on the classic rather than Resident Evil 2, especially with Resident Evil 2, the remake coming out soon, because they could have used that as like the tiniest little sort of PR incentive to put it on the console. But if we're going back to, you know, sort of the same thing with Metal Gear Solid, sort of like classics on... Um, the console, I mean, obviously Resident Evil Director's Cut sort of set a new standard for what survival horror games could be going forward. And I mean, Resident Evil Director's Cut is uh, just like a lot of the other games on here. It's a classic. I love Director's Cut. It's campy as hell. It's ridiculous. But I mean, if you can get down with fixed camera angles and tank controls, um, it I mean, it holds up like I really like this game. I think I don't think it's the best in the franchise by a long shot. I would argue that maybe the Resident Evil remake that came out um, on GameCube and then was later remastered for pretty much every console 
is the best of the series, um, but uh, Director's Cut is definitely worthy of being here. Uh, I thought it was a strange choice, too. I do think it's classic. I mean, if you want to be like, I mean, Resident Evil, again, like you just said, I mean, it set the bar, it redefined, it broke new ground. I mean, it, it made a mark for sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, and nobody emailed me about Alone in the Dark. I already know about all that. And I, Resident <laughs> Evil is still the game that did it. So don't even talk to me about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think that Resident Evil 2 would have been a better pick, like you said, because of the, the synergy with the new one coming out. But I get why they did. I'm not mad. I mean, I think it's it's good that this is on here. It makes sense. So, you know, it's okay. It's a good game. If you've never played it, I think every every horror fan should play through it at least once. So I like that. Um, Revelations Persona. You're not the biggest Persona fan. I'm guessing you don't have much uh, history with this one, Corey. I'm not a Persona fan at all, so I've never... I've heard you talk and other Game Critics podcasters talk about Personas at length. I have never, ever played one. I don't think at all. So um, so tell me about... Is this another example of sort of like the first iteration of a franchise that sort of set it in a new direction? I wouldn't say so. <laughs> I... Uh... I think Persona 3 was really the breakthrough point for the Persona series. I've played almost all the Persona games that have ever been released in America. And I got to say, a lot of them are pretty fucking god-awful. Like, they're really <laughs> uh, they're really um, aggressive towards the player. They're really hard to play. They're extremely difficult in general. They're cryptic. They have just really grindy mechanics. A lot of them are really unpleasant to play. Um, just, I don't imagine a lot of people playing them at all and i certainly don't imagine a lot of persona fans like if you got in on persona 3 and 4 you're like oh this is the best i love it persona 5 so great these games are nothing like that at all like they're not even not even close um it's this is going to be like a grindy ass really fucking difficult jrpg that really wants you to fuck off and die like i don't <laughs> i don't know why they included this it's not a fun game it doesn't speak well of the series this is not the series at its best it doesn't even really show the direction the game is going to take later. It's just, it's a really old throwback. And I think a lot of people are not going to care for it. So I, I, I'm a little puzzled by this one. Uh, Ridge Racer Type 4? Uh, I am aware of the Ridge Racer franchise. Uh, I'm not really, whenever, I mean, I'm not really a big racing game fan uh, to start with. But if I do go to, for a racing game, I was always a Need for Speed Underground kind of guy. I played the hell out of Need for Speed Underground whenever it came out. Probably the... I mean, I, I'm not like a racing game guru, but that's definitely the best racing game I've ever played. Ridge Racer is more of like a rally racing type franchise, and I was never really into that, so I have not... I don't think I've ever played a Ridge Racer. Uh, this was one of the debut titles for the PS1. comes from Namco. Very arcadey. Very... Uh, not even... Nothing, nothing to do at all with simulation. This was super arcadey, like... You know, kind of power slide around the corners, um, techno music playing. Um, I don't imagine it holds up. I don't imagine. Oh, well, okay, so that was Ridge Racer number one. I haven't, I haven't spent a lot of time with Type Four. I played like Ridge Racer one and two, got kind of tired of them after that, and I did. I just kind of bowed out after that. I mean, Ridge Racer four might be a great game. I don't know, but I have a hard time imagining people are going to really give a shit compared to all the other racers that are out there today. Like when you see something like Forza. Um, I mean, just one screenshot of that is like eye melting. So how are you going to want to go back and play Ridge Racer? So I, I'm a little bit puzzled by this one as well. I am also puzzled by Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, which I think is a fun game. It's basically like, I don't know, like 
Tetris or Puyo Puyo or one of those where blocks fall down. You got to make matches. But it's a versus game. So like two people are playing side by side. And then if you make a match, it sends garbage blocks to the enemy side. And if they make a match, it sends garbage <laughs> blocks to your side. So then you have to struggle not only with making matches, but also getting rid of the garbage that they drop on your stack. Um, it's a cool game. It's got little Capcom characters and it's fun to play. I just, I mean, for me personally, I don't, again, I don't associate it very much with the PlayStation 1. It doesn't really seem to like belong to that PlayStation 1 library, but I guess so. So, I mean, it's a good game. It'll hold up for sure. Do you ever you have experience with this one? I have never played it, nor anything else from this series. Oh, it's good. I mean, it's good if you want like kind of a, a, a um, angrier, you know, more aggressive type of Tetris sort of a thing. It's 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 a solid game. It's on many other systems though, and it's it's easily easily available in other formats. So, if you never played it, give it a shot. But yeah, it's good stuff. Um, Siphon filter number one. Any thoughts, Corey? Any attachment to that? Uh, so much attachment. Siphon filter. Oh, really? Really? Yes. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, I played a lot of Siphon Filter whenever it first came out. Um, this was like, I mean, you could maybe argue that Siphon Filter is like the marriage of Metal Gear and Splinter Cell, kind of. Like, it's kind of like both of those games in a way. It has a, a strange, I mean, to start with, if you've never heard of it, it's basically like a third person kind of tactical shooter. It's about, like, terrorism in New York or something. The story is probably really dumb. Um, it has a weird-ass lock-on aiming system, though, because at the time, this was pre, like, DualShock kind of controls. Um, so you move around, and I think you press, like, L1 or R1, and it, the cursor will lock onto an enemy, and then basically you can just shoot them. Um, the game also features a taser, and if you lock onto somebody and tase them long enough, their body catches on fire, which was, like, the coolest thing for, like, 10-year-old me back in the day, because, like, I hadn't seen any other games doing this. Um, I played the hell out of Siphon Filter 1. I only played a little bit of Siphon Filter 2 and 3 because they were difficult. I mean, to be frank at the time, I feel like those games were, like, the ideas were a little bit ahead of their time for the controls that they offered. I think um, a siphon filter today, as long as they could get like a good story right, would be good. And to be completely honest, the best siphon filter games are the ones that are on PSP, which might be a weird thing to say, but there's two siphon filters that were on PSP, and those are, I strongly believe, those are the best the series has to offer. Um, but yeah, siphon filter one, I mean, you're in New York in the first mission, you're in the alleyways, you have your cool like, flak jacket on and gabe logan is the main character and he has this ridiculous like gravelly voice like he was one of the i mean one of the first like gravelly voiced action protagonists um you have leon who is your kind of handler and she talks to you over the radio and you have to go into the subways and mara aramov is down there with her flamethrower and oh my god yeah siphon filter is the <laughs> shit i'm so glad <laughs> i i can't believe we've never talked about this before but i'm so glad the siphon filter is on the PlayStation Classic because it might not. I it might not hold up. I'm not sure. Um, I have this on my PlayStation Three, and I think I have it on my PSP because it was in the back catalog of PS Three PlayStation One games. So I own this on my PSP and on my PlayStation Three, and it, it might not hold up very well, and it might be kind of difficult and kind of silly. But man, what a game! What a game! Wow, I'm surprised that you got such an attachment <laughs> to this game i i i mean first off i agree with you i think the portable versions i played both the portable versions those are much better than any of the console versions i agree those are actually really well done and i think those were done by ready at dawn is that correct you know does that sound mm, right I, to you? I don't know 
I'm not sure. I believe that they did. So I definitely thought the siphon filter on um, PSP was great. Really, really good. Um, I have always thought that siphon filters suffered on console, and I think that you're correct when you say it was like a little bit ahead of its time. I think they were, I think they were on the right track. I think they had the right idea, but the PS1 just was not able to like bring their vision to fruition, and so. I'm going to say this game is going to be unplayable today. I'll bet you anything it does not hold up. I remember struggling with it at the time when it was new and thinking this was jank and it had problems. And I was like, oh, my God, this is rough. I'm guessing it's unplayable. Um, But I do like Gabe Logan. (laughs) A couple of those games are actually legit fucking really good. But I don't think that the first siphon filter is going to be showing Gabe at his best. So that's a little bit unfortunate they went with that one. But. they should really they need to bring siphon filter back i remember wasn't the last the last time they did siphon filter on console wasn't it some weird like online action game on like ps2 or ps3 or something oh my god i i'm hazy but i think what you're saying kind of sounds vaguely familiar i think you might be correct but yeah that's they need to bring it back bring back siphon filter please i know nobody from sony is listening to this but come on guys siphon filter needs to come back please and thank you well and if and if sam fisher's not going to make a return then we need at least one dude filling that role and i mean gabe logan is definitely a solid number two so hopefully they can bring him back we'll see we'll see anyway tekken three you tekken fan you ever get into tekken um i'm not really a fighting game fan at all but i always went Virtual Fighter instead of Tekken. If I were oh, you're to one of those. You're game. one of those bitches. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. but also I, see how you I, are. I mean, I only played like one Virtual Fighter game, so I wasn't like the guy at the arcade feeding quarters to the machine. Like uh, my friends had a PlayStation Two across the street before I did. The same friends that liked um, Final Fantasy games, and uh, and I remember just like playing whatever the first Virtual Fighter was on PlayStation Two. I re- I think it was Virtual Fighter Four. Um, I remember playing that with them and being kind of amazed at like the graphical quality and like the outfits and um, like the, the level design and everything like fighting people on like a, like the top of a skyscraper. Cause it just looked so cool at the time, but I'm not, I, I'm not into fighting games at all. So I can't act like I'm coming from a place of authority here, but I've only played like one Tekken for probably a very brief amount of time, but I, I do have a little bit more experience with virtual fighter. Cool, cool. I was always a Tekken guy rather than a Virtua Fighter guy for various reasons. Um, but I got to say, I think Tekken 2 was probably my all-time favorite. I think it got a really good balance between the the controls being simple enough to be very approachable to anyone and also complicated enough to make people who really got into it feel like they had a lot of options and have enough complexity to be satisfied. I thought Tekken 2 hit a really, really good sweet spot with that. Like, it was... You could learn. It was like it was back in the day when you could still learn the whole game and not have to devote your entire life to it. So like, I felt like Tekken Two is great. Tekken Three is fine. I, I mean, I think it's totally fine. Um, I like it. It's not my favorite in the series, but I think it's a solid addition. And I think people. I mean, I don't know. If you like Tekken, you like Tekken, and you can probably go back and play this. So it's okay. I mean, I, I would have rather seen Tekken Two, but Tekken Three is still good. So <laughs> no worries. Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. Fuck. Is this like a first person game? Do you even know? I don't even know what this even... I mean, yeah. of course I know Rainbow Six, but I don't remember this version of it. I Okay, I remember... I did not get into... I had dabbled with a little bit of Rainbow Six games, but it wasn't until Rainbow Six Vegas that I really, really got into Rainbow Six, and I love, love Rainbow Six Vegas and Rainbow Six Vegas too. Like, I cannot... I cannot tell you the amount of hours I put into those games on the Xbox 360, but the thing about Rainbow Six, that Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, the original ones, like pre, and this goes all the way up to like Dreamcast, um, 
the thing that I could not wrap my head around with these games, and this is such a childish thing to say, is that they were tactical first-person shooters, but there was no gun model on the screen. Like, it, you didn't see the hand holding the gun on the screen, so it didn't look like a first-person shooter. It just had the reticle in the middle of the screen, and whenever you pulled the trigger, that's where the bullet went. And I remember being young and, like, playing these first-person shooters and then coming to Rainbow Six and just thinking, like, well, why isn't the gun there? Like, why isn't the hand there? And it was such a weird disconnect for me. And if I remember correctly, and keep in mind, I was very young whenever I played this. Um, I don't even know if this is the first one I played. It might have been on, like, PS2 or something. I just remember them being really hard and really tactical and really... Um, you had to think about what you were doing a lot. It wasn't like a run-and-gun, Doom kind of first-person shooter. It was very slow, very tactical, uh, very focused on, I think, outfitting your character and with different armor and different guns and the right gadgets for the right missions. And at that point in my life, I was not in that line of thinking to appreciate that kind of thing about a game. So whenever Rainbow Six Vegas finally came along and sort of turned the series into more of a first-person shooter. I mean, it's still tactical, very cat-and-mouse, cover-shooter cover kind of game. Um, that's whenever I was really able to get into the series. Interesting. Okay. I don't have any real association with this one. I didn't play it back in the day. I'm not really a Tom Clancy fan. I mean, I like Splinter Cell, but that's probably the only Tom Clancy thing that I really like. So I don't have any connection and not much to say on it, although I imagine it's probably pretty rough back. I mean, it's probably going to be really, really rough right now. I don't imagine anybody would want to. <laughs> sink time into this um twisted metal the original twisted metal back from before we realized that david jaffe was an immature hack oh my god um yeah this was what he made his name on first this was like the original over the top really extreme kind of gross kind of weird edgelord just brutal <laughs> car combat kind of a weird just you know yeah you know i mean car combat basically you you pick a car you drive around with and it has like rockets and machine guns and stuff in it every driver of the car was like a weird freak in a mask or something a lot of heavy metal music playing uh it's real fucking 90s like real 90s um <laughs> that's really the best way to describe this honestly yeah it's painfully 90s it is like the worst of the 90s wrapped up in one game and i remember the first one being very very rough even back then having a hard time playing it. And people, I think, really liked it more for the style than the actual gameplay. I think Twisted Metal 2 is where it really got tighter and became more of a legit game. But I just, I'm not down with the series. I've never liked it. I've never liked the aesthetic. Um, and I don't know what's up with David Jaffe, but he's been making garbage the last few years and he seems to not be able to get himself out of the 90s. So um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, it, it's appropriate because I think Twisted Metal is very synonymous with PS1. Uh, so I think it's a good pick in that sense, like to give you a historical picture of where we were at back then. Uh, but I probably wouldn't play it. I have no interest in playing it. Any what's what's the connection for you, Corey? Anything? Uh, I mean, I played them whenever I I think I played. I don't know all of them because there were like three, and then there was Black on PlayStation Two, and I think that's kind of where I tuned out. Was I think I played Twisted Metal Black. Um, I, I never owned it, but again, at the same friend's house that had the PlayStation Two across the street before I did. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, it's totally nineties. I played it. I think I liked it at the time, but it was just because it, I was young and it was just kind of like the cool thing at the time. Like if you're young and it was like edgy and you know, like the Axel character was like the guy with two giant wheels for arms and like every, you know, you had to pick your specialized car and decide, I remember there was like a kind of like a motor 
car, like a, like a, not a sports car, but it was like a muscle car. That's the word I'm looking for. There was like a character in a muscle car and like, that was the one that I really liked, but I can't even remember who it was. Um, I mean, the thing that I liked about Twisted Metal that maybe I still appreciate to this day is the fact that despite it's painfully 90s aesthetic and it's sort of like edgy for edgy's sake thing, um, at least every character, like they put a lot of time and effort into making every character their own because instead of you just driving a bunch of cars around, like every character had their own car and the characters were characters. It wasn't just like, you know, some random dude, like they were, there was the guy with the wheels for arms. Um, there was the ice cream truck driver who was sort of like the mascot. Wait, 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 you got, you got to back up a minute. So there was, you're correct. Yeah. We got to highlight this. There was a guy who was strapped into like a frame (laughs) and he had two giant wheels, one on each arm. And do you remember what his name was, Corey? Was it Axel? It was Axel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So that's where David Jaffe's coming from. So, yeah. But I mean, I, that's one thing that was kind of neat is that they were all like specialized character with their own sort of car that l- went to their like backstory, if you will. Yeah, they did. Um, they have cutscenes and backstories too, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, it was silly. It was '90s. It's just like an arcade car shoot 'em up kind of game. Um, really silly, but it fits because Twisted Metal is totally synonymous with Sony and with PlayStation. Maybe not anymore, but at the time, it definitely was. Absolutely, absolutely. And Sweet Tooth, the flaming-headed psycho killer clown, who I believe actually killed kids in his ice cream car, was another person who became, like that S&M queen, kind of a weird spokesperson for Sony. Like, I can't imagine anybody picking a psycho clown who killed kids as the mascot for their company, but for a while, he was the face of PlayStation, which is insane when you think about it, so... Uh, last game on the list. Boy, this uh, ended up being more of a journey than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. But uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Wild Arms. Uh, Wild Arms on PS1. Did you ever play Wild Arms? Do you know about Wild Arms? I have not played it, and I don't think I know what it is. This is a JRPG where it was blending in, like, Western elements. I played this before back in the day. I gotta be honest with you, I hated it. I did not like it at all. But there's a very strong cult following for the Wild Arms series. Um, I have, I've never liked these games, um, so just full disclosure. But yeah, it was like, you had guns and you wore cowboy hats and stuff, but then you did JRPG things. And, you know, I mean, typical JRPG. I don't, I mean, I don't like JRPGs that much in general. And this one never stood out to me as being a good example. I never finished one. Didn't enjoy them very much. Um, I mean, I, I guess there's a certain segment of people who are probably really excited to see this coming out. And I do think it is appropriate, uh, given that it was very popular on PlayStation 1 at the time. So I think it's a good pick in that sense. I, I don't know if it's going to hold up. I don't know if it's going to be fun these days. But it was something that was very well known back in the day. So I can see why they put it on there. So, And there we go. Any final thoughts, Corey, after this discussion? Are you more motivated, less motivated, still neutral about buying a retro PS1? Uh, I was never interested in buying this and the list of games does not make me any more interested because like I said before, when we talked about this, um, I'm not going to reward Sony for treating its consumers like children and packing these 20 games into a console and selling it for $100 whenever they could just bring the marketplace of PlayStation one games to the PlayStation four that came out 12 years ago on the PlayStation 3, I would much rather have that. Um, Both would be fine as well, because I understand sort of the novelty value of buying a PlayStation 1 Classic, but putting out a PlayStation Classic without even mentioning any consideration of bringing those games to the PlayStation Network to buy on PlayStation 4, I think is 
um, just silly and it's just rude to be honest. I don't I don't like this practice. Yeah, I feel kind of mixed on it also. I mean, I think the idea, I mean, clearly they're cashing in on the nostalgia. Maybe some people who don't even have a PS4 will see the PS1 and be like, oh yeah, when I was in high school, this was the shit. So I can kind of get like why they do it. Um, Oh, you know, whatever. I mean, I definitely would be in support of having some of these things on the PSN store. I would love to pick up Intelligent Cube again. I would buy that in a heartbeat. That is an awesome game. I would definitely pick up, um, I don't think it's compatible, but Jumping Flash again for PS4 just to have it. I think that would be fun. Um, a couple of these, but overall, I'm not gonna buy one because I don't really see myself, like, buying it and setting it up and playing. I mean, it would literally just be for Intelligent Cube, which is kind of tempting, but nah, <laughs> I don't need it. I don't need another box in my house. And I already beat the shit out of it, so I don't know. I probably wouldn't want to go through it again all the way. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, so there it is. There's our breakdown of the uh, the PS1 retro console ps1 classic ps1 is that what it's called ps1 classic uh, i don't playstation classic i'm not sure well whatever anyway um, there we yeah. go there we go thoughts feelings let us know uh but that's probably the last time we're going to talk about that let's move on Corey. you had an interesting thing happen uh i talked about pizza titan ultra last episode and then developments why don't you fill us in on what's up with pizza titan ultra <laughs> yeah so I I don't have a lot to say about the gameplay of this game itself. I just kind of want to tell the story about what happened with this game. So last week you talked about it. Um, I thought it sounded like a lot of fun. Uh, I, I didn't even know what this game was. And to for anybody who missed it or who doesn't remember, this is a game, a third-person, sort of isometric game where you play as a giant robot. You play as someone who pilots a giant robot that works for a basically a pizza company. And in order to deliver the pizzas, you have to run this giant robot around town over these maps. And then you punch your giant robot fist into these skyscrapers and deliver the pizza with your cool robot. And you have to like, there's like helicopters and stuff that are shooting at you from like rival pizza companies. And you have to like knock them out of the air or like stomp on their tanks or whatever. Um, it's, it, it sounded really fun whenever you talked about it last week. So uh, and a- other thing, last week I talked about how every once in a while a developer will get in touch with me about video games. Um, like that happened with uh, Other Side, which I talked about last week from developer Ben Lapid, who found me on Twitter, DM'd me, um, sort of like pitched the game to me based on what stuff that he had seen that I had written before. Well, the same thing happened this time. So we talked about it on the show. Every once in a while, whenever we tweet out the arc podcast because we generally unless we talk about like 50 games which happens sometimes uh we generally list all the games in our tweet that we talk about so people can know what we're going to talk about whenever they click on the link to listen to the show and we never um tag video games twitter accounts we never use hashtags we never tag developers um i don't i personally just don't really like doing that like I, i that's not something i'm interested in doing um but we do list the games. So the developers of Pizza Titan Ultra found the tweet, they favorited it, and they listened not only to their segment on the show, but I'm pretty sure that they listened to the entire show. And they DM'd me out of nowhere on Twitter last week. Well, I shouldn't say out of nowhere, because obviously there is a path that they followed to get there. But I wasn't expecting them. I didn't reach out to them. I didn't even know the developers' names. I didn't know the, the development studio or anything. I just know what you talked about on the show. So they DM'd me on Twitter last week and uh, wrote me about a paragraph-long message talking about kind of like very lightheartedly 
uh, talking about the game and talking about, oh, you know, we heard you talk about this. We heard Brad talk about it. Um, basically, long story short, would you be interested in a code for it? And I was like, oh, hell yeah, of course I would. And But I told them, because I wanted to be kind of uh, cheeky back to them, I told them that I would only accept the code if they delivered it to my office via a giant robot and then punched through the wall in the building I work in and then delivered a, the envelope with the code on it via a giant robot. And unfortunately, they could not do that. Um, I, I think all their robots are out of service right now or they're in the shop or something, so they couldn't do that. I told them that I would let it slide only this one time and that if they made a sequel or if they made another game about giant robots, that if they wanted to give me a code, then they would have to do it by giant robot or and I would not accept it. Um, so they ended up giving me a code for Switch and I've only played it a little bit. I've played about two or three levels, so I'm not in deep at all. But I mean, I don't have anything to go against what you've said. I mean, it's really fun. It's an arcadey experience. It's really silly. It's really lighthearted. Um, the art style, um, I didn't realize this, but in, there's like cut scenes between missions where you're sort of like back in the lobby of the pizza company that you work for. And it's kind of like a, it's almost like an RPG, like where it just shows like, uh, like a portrait of the person talking. And then you kind of click through the text that they're talking about. Um, the art style for those characters is really cool. There's like this cool, like woman of color who has a pizza cutter but it's like a laser pizza cutter that she's holding and it just like looks really neat and there's this like douche bro guy who works for the company who has the stupid like Kanye West sunglasses that have like the plastic lines all over the front of them and they make fun of him because obviously he's like an idiot but he thinks he's like hot shit so like everybody has a cool sort of character moment um, in the little cutscenes. like you get a pretty a pretty quick and good vibe of who everyone is um, so I like that um, but the game, I mean, it's pretty fun. It's really just lighthearted, silly, running around town, punching helicopters out of the air. Um, there's power-ups you can get. There's You can collect money by jumping on top of buildings. Um, if you run through neighborhoods, you can destroy the houses, which I accidentally did a lot. And at a certain point, one of your handlers will be like, she'll kind of message you during the mission and be like, okay, how about we stop uh, destroying the neighborhoods while you're delivering pizza? So I try to be careful about, you know, running around the houses, but... Um, I don't have, like I said, I don't have a lot to say about the game itself. It is fun. It's kind of like a, if I ha need a few minutes to play something and, you know, don't want to dive too deep into anything, I'll put it on. Like yesterday, I uh, oddly, or a couple days ago, oddly enough, I was actually making a pizza myself. And whenever I preheated the oven, I just sat down in the kitchen and played it while I was preheating the pizza. Oh, I put shit. The pizza in. Corey I know, like, Corey really, And I didn't even mean to do this now that I'm thinking about it. Um and, and, like, I put the pizza in, the pizza's cooking. I'm playing Pizza Titan Ultra on my Switch while I'm waiting for the pizza to cook, um, you know, because it only took, like, 20 minutes to cook, so that's, like, not enough time to really, like, dive deep into a game, so I was able to play it. Um, I haven't unlocked any of, like, the cosmetic stuff or any of the other power-ups. Like, the starting power-up is, like, a it makes you dash, makes you run fast, um, so I haven't really dived in enough to unlock any of the extra stuff yet. But it's really fun. I mean, it's just like you said last week. It's just kind of a lighthearted romp. It's silly. It's fun. Uh, the writing's pretty funny. Um, I like it. It's it's cute. And just the whole interaction with the development studio um, sending me that message, because it was very clear based on the language that they used and the message that they sent me on Twitter that they had listened to our entire podcast because they were like referencing things from the show that, what, that was stuff we weren't even talking about about their game. So I thought that was really cool too, because especially because... 
our podcast is usually pretty long. It's usually two to three hours. Um, we talk about, I don't know, like anywhere from four to 10, 15 games on it. So the fact that they took the time to listen to, I mean, at least what it sounded like was most of it and then sort of reference those things in the message to me um, really meant a lot. It was very cute. So um, thank you, Pete's Titan Ultra Crew, for giving me a code to the game. Um, I appreciate it. I will keep playing it. Maybe I will bring some more updates in the future on it whenever I play it while baking pizzas in my house in the future. And, uh, and that's it. That's, that's my Pizza Titan Ultra story. Right on. Yeah, I do think it's a great game in five and ten minute bursts. I'm still um, chipping away at it. I haven't gotten very far because I only do like one or two missions a night when I'm in bed. But, it, you know, it, it fills a nice niche. It is very cute and funny, and I think it's very well designed for short plays, which is very true also of Crazy Taxi, which I think is probably the <laughs> spiritual um, inspiration for this. So, yeah, good. Right on, right on. Uh, that's great. And also thanks to uh, those guys for listening to the podcast. Hopefully they continue to listen. It would, I always love having uh, developers listen to our show and you know getting more people involved. So thank you very much, guys. Um, that will bring us to the next game, which is on me. I've been playing Moonlighter on Switch. This game came out on PC originally. I believe it was also a Kickstarter. It went to PS4 after that. Then there was like a pretty sizable delay, and it finally came out on Switch, which is where I'm playing it. And I did receive a code from the publisher, so full disclosure on that. This game is a 2D, kind of a Zelda-esque top-down sort of a thing, where you're kind of looking down on your character as they go into dungeons that are room by room. It's split into two portions. In one portion, you go into these randomized dungeons and fight monsters with your sword. You can make other weapons like a bigger sword or a spear or a bow and arrow and stuff like that. You kill these monsters, they die, and little components drop out. Like you'll kill a jelly monster, you'll get like red jelly, or you kill a golem and you'll get like golem cube or something like that or whatever. You bring this stuff back to your, your home. You have a little shop in town. And the other half of the game is selling the stuff that you get in the dungeons. And so you start off with a real small shop with just a little store. You can put four items on it. You set the prices and then you wait for people to come in and look at your stuff. And so people come in and they'll look at what's on the on the table and they will give you like an emoticon. So like if it's a good price, that's fair. They'll give you like a smiley face. If it's too expensive, they'll give you like a frowny face. And if you put it too low to where they feel like they're really getting a steal, like like a really like, oh, undervalued item, then they get like this little like gold coins in the eyes face. So, you know, oh, shit, I should have charged more for that. So you lost out on that one. Uh, but you kind of watch the people's faces as they buy your item and then you go back. You can adjust it on the fly. Like you sell one item. Oh, that was too low. You go back over there, kick up by five or ten bucks or whatever. You want everybody to have a smiley face where they're happy with it, but you're also getting the maximum amount of profit and keeping your customers happy. So you go back and forth between these two modes and, and for the first like two hours, I was like all in. I'm like, oh, this is so neat. Doing top-down action in randomized dungeons, that's pretty much my thing. I really like doing this. This is fun. Bringing this stuff back to the shop. And oddly enough, like I think the shop is actually kind of more fun than the combat, which sounds weird, but like <laughs> I think it's really just, it's very simple. It's very approachable. It's not, you know, you're not like managing a spreadsheet or anything like that. It's very simple. You look on the item and it very easily tells you what you charged last time. And so it's, it's very, the, the interface is very um, easy to use, very player friendly. And just like, kind of like, is this a hundred bucks? Is it 150? What does the person do? Oh, they're sad. Okay. So it should have been a hundred. Oh wait, no, they got the gold coins. Ah, okay. So maybe it's 120, like kind of going back and forth. It sounds bizarre, but I actually got more enjoyment out of doing the shop stuff than the combat stuff. Um, 
So that's really what the game is about. I got to say, first off, the graphics are amazing. Like, whoever did the sprite work on this game, master, master level sprite work. I mean, the animation's fantastic. The little details are fantastic. It's a very visually appealing game. I think the graphics are superb for an indie and not just for an indie but i mean just like sprite graphics in general i don't mean to give you like i don't mean to give like a backhanded compliment or anything like i, I think it genuinely looks great um very very impressed with the sprite work i think the concept is really cool and fresh i know there have been a couple of shopkeeper sort of games i think Reketeer is probably the most famous one and if i'm mispronouncing that i apologize but that was really big on switch for or not switch pc for a while uh, that was very famous for a while. There's a couple of the shop games. And so I know it's not a brand new thing, but you don't see shopkeeping crop up very often in games. Uh, so it's neat. And like I said, for the first two hours, I was really into it. Uh, but as I kept playing, I started noticing that there really wasn't much else to the game. Uh, apparently there's like a story twist that happens like as you're at least halfway through the story, but I don't think I'm going to make it there because... <laughs> I mean, like, you're fighting, and that's fine, but there's not really any anything else to the combat. Like, you can choose your weapon, or you can make new weapons, but it's it's all pretty just real simple and straightforward. Like, there's not a lot of... Um, I don't know. It just doesn't feel very complicated. It doesn't feel very nuanced. It doesn't feel very uh, entertaining. Like, once you've gotten the gist of it, like, there's not a lot of... Because, like, in a good, in a good roguelike, you'll get modifiers. Like, you'll get a new weapon that'll give you a twist, or something will happen. You'll get a status that makes it harder to fight, or you'll... There will be some kind of weird complication that makes makes each combat run fresh. You know, like maybe you pick up a weapon at random, and so maybe you pick up a spear, but you really like the sword, so you're stuck with the spear, so that gives you a new experience. Or maybe, you know, you get sick and your, wep your damage is half damage, or maybe you are bleeding gold coins or something. I mean, there's always some kind of weird thing in a, in a roguelike that keeps it fresh. So far, I haven't seen anything like that. Like, it's pretty straightforward. Like, you get the weapon you want. You can, you know, make better weapons and armor if you want to, and you just kind of just basically do the combat, which feels fine, but it just feels a little bit too simple. When you collect the stuff, there's a little, a little bit of complication because some items have to be put in your backpack in a certain way. So like if a monster drops a bunch of stuff, you can just shove some of it in your backpack, but some of it will be like, if you put this item on the bottom, it will crush whatever item is below it, or this item needs to be on the right side of your bag, or this item will destroy the item that's above it once you go back to town. Or there's a few of those things, so it, it kind of puts a little complications on how you fill up your backpack, but it's not really that big a deal. It's also not really that entertaining. So you get back to town and you sell stuff, and this it really quickly you see like the game wants you to grind. I mean, the first shop upgrade was like $4,000. The next shop upgrade was like $50,000. <laughs> and like the next shop upgrade was like $800,000. And I'm like, okay, like clearly I'm going to have to sell some things. Clearly I'm going to have to make some money. That's what the game is about. I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, I mean, this is cool, but I just feel like there should be more to it. Like, I feel like there should be more quests to do or maybe more characters to talk to or maybe spice up the combat of the dungeons a little bit. Like it feels like a really, really good first step, you know, like this is like their, their beta. And then all the other features that they're working on are going to be coming in later. But like, there is no other features coming. Like this is the game. So it's, it's good for what it is, but I got to say, I started losing interest about two or three hours in and I don't think I'm going to finish it. And I kind of wish that they had done more with it. And I, I know, I know making games is hard. Being an indie is hard. Kickstarting is hard. Like, I get that, and I'm sympathetic. 
But just being a critic and speaking as someone who plays a lot of games, that's just where I'm coming down on this. I like it. I like the idea. It's a good start, but I feel like it didn't go far enough. Thoughts, feelings, ideas, Corey? Uh, I was... I don't really think this is the kind of game I would play, but I was looking through their Kickstarter page. I was looking at it on my phone while you were talking about it so I could get an idea of what it looked like and the art design and stuff. And um, maybe this is like a silly comment to make, but their Kickstarter page is incredibly robust. Like they have so much information on their Kickstarter page and they have even like, like a lot of pictures and a lot of sort of gifts that just like move right there on the page as you're scrolling through it that show the animations that they're working on that show the the weapon trees from upgrading weapons and all that kind of stuff. And they have these cute little sort of pixelated portraits of sort of the major players and their development team at the bottom of the page. And so it looks like, I mean, whoever, I mean, they raised, according to their Kickstarter, they raised $134,000 to make the project with more than 5,000 backers. Um, But I mean, whoever, first of all, whoever set up their Kickstarter page, like, knew what they were doing. There's a shitload of information there and it's all really elegantly designed and really well done. So I'm uh, like, I don't know, hats off to them because I'm sure that played a pretty big role in them, um, you know, raising so much money for it and everything. But I don't really think this is something that I would play, but it sounds, uh, I don't know, it sounds all right. And maybe if with the success of this game, if they move on to another project, it'll sort of be like, I don't know, they're more robust, I don't know, sequel or adventure or something that adds in more stuff. It's kind of a bummer because I saw this one at PAX a couple years ago and I thought it looked really, really cool, was really looking forward to it. And I really was especially waiting for it to hit the Switch because I felt like that would be the optimal place to play it. And it runs fine on the Switch, by the way. Like there's no there's no performance problems. If you if you're gonna get this and you want to get it on Switch, peel, you know, don't be afraid. It, it's totally fine there. Um I just, I just kind of wish there was more to it. I was looking forward to it for a while. I was kind of hoping this would be like a, a you know, like a little un, a lesser known kind of, um, you know, like a sleeper hit or something. And it just didn't quite get off the ground for me. But I mean, so much promise with this game. I think that you're correct. I think a sequel or whatever they do next, I bet will be leaps and bounds better than what they did here. And it's not bad. It's just, there's just not enough. So no, no hate. No, you know, I'm not trashing it or anything. I just feel like it just kind of feels like half a game. And a little bit more polish would have, would have, you know, put it over the top for me. But there you go. That is Moonlighter. That is on the Switch. And uh, we're going to be moving on next. Did we say the Did we say the game of the... What was the first game we talked about? It wasn't uh, Moonlighter. Pizza Titan Ultra. Pizza Titan I want to make sure that we do our due diligence and say the titles. Pizza Titan Ultra, Moonlighter. And now we're going to be moving on to Arizona Sunshine and the Dead Man DLC. I know a little bit about this one. This is one of the earliest... PSVR titles, I think, to come out. It's uh, we I think we covered it at Game Critics. I think Dan Weisenberger covered it. All I know about it is that it's zombies in the daytime. That's all I know. So, <laughs> Corey, I'm assuming you're playing it in VR. Tell us, tell us all about it. Yes, I'm gonna make. I don't think this is gonna be a difficult thing to do. Um, however much you might roll your eyes at it, but I'm gonna try to bring maybe like one VR game to the show every week, and this is our. VR game for this week, I suppose. And uh, but I'm talking about this not because I feel like I need to bring a VR game to the show, but because I actually think this is a this is an incredible game. So, it's Arizona Sunshine. It's been out for a while, um, and it's one of those games on Steam because I played it on HTC Vive on Steam on my computer. It's one of those games that I've been wanting to pick up, but it just like never went on sale ever. And I think it was like forty dollars full price. And I mean, I'm. 
I like, you know, based on it has like highly positive reviews on Steam and everything and everybody seems to love it. But, you know, there's just a certain amount that I'm willing to pay for a game and $40 for a VR title. If you're not sure if it's going to be good, I just wasn't sure if I wanted to take that leap. But thank goodness for Halloween because it's a zombie game. There were sales. There were a bunch of sales on um, on Steam last week for Halloween for scary games and stuff like that. So uh, Patrick and I actually picked up a handful of games on the Steam sale, and this is one of them. Um, it went on sale. I bought it, and I do not regret one bit uh, buying it because this is... So I talked about the Brookhaven experiment on the show several shows ago, and it's basically a kind of a wave shooter with zombies where you just stand in one place. Um, you know, maybe there's hallways around you. Maybe you're in a field. And zombies sort of come from around the environment and other enemies too, and you shoot them in a wave formation. Well, Arizona Sunshine is like that, but on steroids, because it's not a wave shooter. It's not a stand-in-one-place game. This is a you're moving around the environment um, completely on your own. It's not on rails. It's not you standing in one place. Um, you have full control over where you're going and what you're doing, which sounds silly to be highlighting that, but a lot of VR games are stuck in a sort of you're standing in one place doing wave shooting kind of thing. And I just want to make it clear that this is not that you have, you can do the uh, teleportation controls, which I talk about pretty much every time I talk about a VR game, or you can do just regular walking around if you want to. You you decide which one you want to do. And of course, the game gives you a uh, disclaimer that full motion might uh, induce motion sickness. So I did teleportation controls because I just like the way that feels on VR. Um, this is a zombie game where you play as a guy. It's sort of like almost like Walking Dead-ish, where you just play as a guy who's basically just kind of surviving on his own. In Arizona, it is, most of the game is during the daytime, so, you know, as the title might suggest, Arizona Sunshine, um, it's not really like a grim, you know, nighttime, Resident Evil, everything's on fire, you're scared, you're running. I mean, it's not really like a survival horror game. It's just kind of like a... It's kind of just like a survival game. I mean, the thing that I like about it is, I mean, I like a lot of things about it, but the fact that you can move freely about the environment and you don't have to worry about being on rails or it being a wave shooter um, is really freeing for a VR title. And I like the main character. He talks a lot, and usually that annoys me in games, but I actually kind of like the main character in this game. He's kind of like... He kind of reminds me of, like, if you take Josh Brolin from any of the dozens of movies where he plays kind of, like, a southern or, like, westerner kind of guy, like No Country for Old Men or Sicario, he kind of reminds me of, like, a cynical Josh Brolin western type character, but he's got a good sense of humor in the game. Like, he calls um, the zombies Freddies throughout the entire game, which I think is really funny. It's just kind of silly in the game. Um and he'll, like, kind of talk to them if they're, like, ganging up on him, and he'll say things. And he has a lot of um, just, like, a, an ongoing narrative with the world, and he has a pretty good sense of humor about about him in the game, which I appreciate. Um, but it's, it's good because it kind of reminds me a little bit of Zombie U on Wii U because it's first person, and it's kind of about, like, managing your stuff, and it's also about shooting zombies around you. And there's certain scenarios where the, there's a, most of the zombies just walk. There's a, a few that run, but a lot of them just walk where you're like, 
in a house or you're in a shack and you're kind of going through different drawers or going through desks or trying to find guns or ammo or whatever's around you. And you can like hear the zombies kind of like ganging up on you. But because it's in VR and you have to like physically look around at everything you're doing, you have to really like keep an eye on the door to make sure they're not there while you're trying to rummage through all the stuff. And, uh, and the way the game does weapons, I really appreciate too, because you could do dual handed, uh, dual wielding, which is great. And you can also put one gun on each of your hips. Like you have a holster on your right leg and on your left leg. So you can have four guns at a time. Um, the game sort of continually introduces new guns over the course of the game. And a lot of them, like, they're not that different from maybe the one you had before because there's pistols, there's revolvers, there's shotguns, and there are submachine guns. And you start with one gun, but at a certain point, like, I found a gun that had a flashlight on it. So that was something kind of new and cool um, that I could use. And then later on, I found uh, a pistol that had, that was like a fully automatic pistol that still used pistol rounds because the submachine gun rounds are separate from the pistol rounds and the shotgun rounds are separate. So, like, at a certain point, I had, like, my fully automatic handgun in my hand. And then if I needed to see stuff, I could just, like, swap it out for my handgun with the flashlight on it. And then wherever I aimed, you know, obviously it would light up the environment. Because there are a few areas where you're in tunnels, a little bit darker. Um, I think there's one level that's at night, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, it's kind of harder to look around unless you have a flashlight. Um, and, like, the thing that confused me is that you find your first or your second gun, because you start with one, your second gun, maybe, like, I don't know, like 10 minutes into the game. And at the time I was like, oh, like it's already introducing a new gun. This is kind of new and interesting. But you come to realize that as you play it, about every like 15 minutes or so of the game, you'll just find a new gun in the environment. And at a certain point you have to make the decision like on what guns you like, because you're probably not gonna find that one again. And so like I kept the fully automatic pistol. I got it about halfway through the game and I ended up keeping it, but I could have swapped it out for any gun I found along the way. And you, and, but once you leave a gun somewhere, you're basically leaving it there forever. So you really have to decide like what you value in your guns um, or what kind of ammo management you're doing. Because um, if you have a submachine gun, obviously you only have submachine gun rounds. So by the end of the game, I had uh, usually had a shotgun on my left hip, a submachine gun in my left hand, a my fully automatic pistol on my right hip or on my right hand, and then I had like a revolver or another pistol. Um, and you can, like, switch them out anytime you want. The reload mechanic hey, is... Hang on one second, Corey. Let yeah. me stop you there for a second. I want to ask you something. So yes. you are somebody who has actual real-world experience with guns. Uh, you are you are, you are are knowledgeable about <laughs> guns. This is true. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, you just described this dude basically being, like, loaded for Mega Bear. It, so knowing <laughs> what you know about guns, would you imagine yourself strapping that many guns onto you? And if so, would that be a thing that you could do? Or, like... Would you just like fall over being weighed down or what would that be like for you? <laughs> well, most of the guns are pretty small. So um, I think it's re mostly realistic to have like, f well, I mean, I think it's realistic to have four guns at once, but uh, like the, the, like if you're climbing though, because part of the game, you're kind of like, I mean, you're teleporting, so you're not like actually climbing. But there's, like, ladders you use in the game, and you just kind of, like, aim at the ladder and click on it, and he just kind of climbs it in a second on his own and gets to the top. Th those are the kind of situations where in real life this would not be practical because if you had two holsters and then you had two guns in your hands, I mean, climbing a ladder is not an easy thing to do, first of all, but you can't really climb a ladder with two guns in your hands. So I don't know if you would, like, tuck one of the guns in your belt loop or something, like, in the back of your pants or whatnot. So I feel like having four would be overkill for traversal purposes. Um... But I don't think it would weigh you 
down. I mean, maybe after like a long time, if you're walking for like miles and miles, it probably wouldn't be the best. But I mean, the guns in this game are all pretty small. Like even the submachine guns, they're more like Uzis, like that kind of thing. So it's never like a giant machine gun that you're holding or, you know, like a big sniper rifle or something. Okay, I was just wondering because I know that, you know, we kind of talked about like I can gun and like how the mechanics of reloading are much different than they are in a general game and like you know the the trope in video game shooters is like oh yeah like the doom guy has like 14 guns on him including <laughs> a rocket launcher and stuff and i was like oh you know i just i kind of would wonder about that i mean kind of a little tangent did you ever play alone in the dark um inferno or alone in the dark the remake that came out on 360 or ps3 i am one of the few people that enjoys alone in the dark inferno and just to be clear the game came out on Xbox 360 first, and then when it came out on PS3, it had the Inferno tagline, and they had fixed some of the bad things from the 360 version. So Inferno is the better version. It's very experimental and silly, and the story's god-awful, but I actually do like that game. Well, I actually like that game, too. So you are in good company. Ooh, here we go. I played it. I played it on 360. I liked it, but I thought it was kind of broken. I played the Inferno version on PS3, and I thought it was great. Just like you said, experimental, weird... I love the ending. I think a lot. I think a lot of the game is really fascinating. Um, some of the systems they they try to implement like real fire. They try to implement some physics. I mean, it's weird and janky and just awkward. But like, I think there's a lot. That game was like so far ahead of its time. <laughs> uh, but the reason I bring it up is because in that game, I don't know if you remember the inventory system or not. Oh yeah, of course. You I actually this. yeah, like you open up your jacket and you look down on your chest and there's like pockets and so you had to act. You could only carry stuff that you had pockets for. And I thought that was so interesting. And I mean, it wasn't perfect. I mean, there was still some problems with it, but somebody just reapproached, you know, trying to get us get away from the whole I have 42 guns because this is that kind of game. Just giving like one little half a notch of realism into it kind of like gave it a, a very different spin. So that's what made me think about this. Like, you know, are they trying to do like a more realistic like, yeah, I could realistically carry three or four small guns, but I can't carry like an AK plus a shotgun plus a rocket launcher. Plus like, I mean, ammo's heavy. I'm guessing if it's made of metal and you got like all the gunpowder and stuff, it's gotta be heavy. I can't imagine you carry 8,000 rounds in your back pocket. I mean, you need a truck for that or whatever. So interesting that you, you know, you feel like they in general got it pretty, pretty realistic in Arizona sunshine then. Yeah. I'm kind of assuming that maybe his ammo's in like a backpack or something because it's first person. The game doesn't really, you don't like see the character model. Um, but to, to kind of piggyback off the comment though, um, the, the, this, I feel like every time I talk about VR games, I talk about some really stupid basic ass thing it does that I think is just the most fascinating thing in the universe. And here I think reloading for the game is pretty interesting. Cause it's not, I talked about, I can gun last week where you have to press like 18 buttons on the controller to reload the gun. But in this game um, you have your guns and then whenever you're shooting them, you don't have... One thing that kind of ups the intensity of, uh, you know, kind of shooting the zombies is that there's no indicator on the on any of your guns on how many bullets you have left in the clip. So whenever you run out, you run out, and you're kind of fucked. Well, I mean, if you reload, you're fine. But in Harry's situations, um, it's not always that easy. But something that I like about the game is kind of like in Alone in the Dark, um, in Arizona Sunshine, in order to look at your inventory, if you will, you literally just, like, look down at your chest. So it's kind of like... If you had like an ammo belt strapped around your chest and you look down at it, if you look down, it shows you the count of every kind of bullet you have. And if you have grenades, it shows grenades like the the bullets, the bullet counts are probably around like the top of your stomach, like just below your chest. The grenades appear kind of like on your chest, if you will, whenever you look down. But to reload, 
you press the touchpad on the controller and it ejects the magazine and then you just like press the controller against your chest and it's sort of like if you it kind of reminds me like in the tomb raider movie the first one whenever angelina jolie like ejects the clips out of her backpack and she just like slaps the clip in by like pushing her pistol against the backpack when the clips eject like that's kind of what's going on here like you press the button to eject the clip from the gun and then you just like press the controller against your chest and that pushes a new clip into it and then you're ready to go you're ready to to start shooting you don't have to do like the slide release or anything but it's just like a really sort of clever and different way to approach reloading because even in a lot of vr games i play you press one button and the gun reloads and then that's it or maybe you have to like insert the clip with the other controller into the gun but here it's cool because you're like shooting you eject the clip you like tap the controller on your chest, it reloads the gun, and then you're ready to go again. It's just kind of a cool, like, little way to do it that I really appreciate. Um, interesting, interesting. Yeah, okay. I like it. Um, but I, I like this game. The it's It took me about three to four hours to beat. Um, it's It has, like, different areas you can do. Like, you start out in kind of, like, a mountainous Arizona region. There's a part where you go into this underground tunnel, this sort of, like, train kind of like train car tunnel area that's kind of dark so it adds a new little area because you have like a flashlight in one hand you find a flashlight and of course you can choose not to take the flashlight the game doesn't make you take it but at that point you can have a flashlight in your hand and then a gun in the other because you obviously it's pretty good idea to be able to see what's going on and those parts are pretty intense because the areas are really dark and whenever you have a flashlight you can only see a certain amount of the environment using the beam and there's a lot of times where the game kind of like gets a little more intense where it'll introduce these sort of like wave situations where like, you know, there's a room where you have to pick up an item, like a key or something in order to use it somewhere to move on. But as soon as you pick up the key, there'll be like a wave of zombies that come in or like a loud noise will happen and a wave will come in. And you really just kind of have to pay attention to what's going on in your environment and shoot them and be able to reload well and move if you need to move out of their way or what have you. Um, something that bothers me is that, to my knowledge, there's no melee in the game. There's no way to, like, punch the zombies. And this is problematic for me because a lot of times, due to, you know, not being able to look 360 degrees around you at all times, a zombie will, like, sneak up behind you. Or if you're in a wave, they'll be coming from two different directions and you're kind of focused on one. And then you look to your right and suddenly there's a zombie right there, like, clawing your face off. You can't just, like, punch them, which I think is not cool. Like, even in the Brookhaven experiment, you can just, like, punch zombies or you have a knife in your left hand. This game, as far as I know, doesn't have any melee weapons. It's only guns. And you can't punch the zombies, which is problematic for me. Because if the zombies get close enough, it kind of is difficult to shoot them because you have to, like, pull your gun, like, kind of back, almost, like, behind your shoulder. I mean, I guess sort of like you'd have to do in real life to shoot them. And you can't, like, move. Like, if they're clawing you, you can't just, like, hit the teleport button and, like, teleport 10 feet out of the way. You have to, like, kill them before you can move. So you have to be very cognizant of what's going on around you. Um, something else, I never, ever thought I would say this about a game, but something that I kind of wish this game had were boss battles. Because most of the game is just you going through these environments and either shooting zombies or getting around the zombies and the most intense moments come whenever like i said something happens where like a wave will come in and you have to kill maybe like 20 or 30 in a row as they're kind of surrounding you but there's no like boss battles or anything there's no there's really zombies are the only enemies in the game and there's a lot of different character models for the zombies 
Some of them, most of them walk, some of them run, which makes things a little more intense, but there's, there's nothing else than that. There's no, I mean, it's not like Resident Evil where you have, you know, liquors and you have giant worm monsters and you have the, the tyrants and stuff. Like, it's only zombies, which I think is, for the most part, intense enough because it's kind of difficult sometimes to be, like, managing your inventory and getting around the environment and shooting the zombies. But I like that most of the zombies walk and they just kind of walk toward you because it kind of really gives you a chance to set up your shots and take them because you are aiming in VR in real life. Um, but I wish that there were boss battles or at least some something else going on that would maybe add a little more intensity to to some of the levels. Um, but I I mean I I like this game a lot. I think this probably super hot and budget cuts are maybe like my top three VR games so far. Maybe um, I don't know. I just like Arizona Sunshine because it feels this again. This is such a stupid compliment, but I feel like I have to say this whenever I talk about VR games. It just feels like a real game. Like it doesn't feel like a tech demo. It doesn't feel like the development company threw this together in six months and put out a single level. It feels like a real game. You're moving around the environment. You're exploring. You're doing um, inventory management, finding stuff, finding keys, finding ammo, um, scavenging for ammo while being alert to what's going on around you and shooting zombies and stuff. Um, you know, it has a story. I mean, the story is pretty paper thin. You're just kind of like a guy following radio signals, trying to figure out if there is like a radio tower somewhere, if you can get rescued, um, how to get out of Arizona and get away from the, the zombie apocalypse. But it's also lighthearted. Like it's not a scary Resident Evil game. It's, I mean, there are moments that are definitely intense where you're in dark locations and there's zombies around. You can hear them and you don't know where they are or... Um, if there's waves or zombies coming after you, like there's definitely moments of intensity, but it's pretty lighthearted. I mean, the, the main character, like I said, he has kind of like a funny cynicism about him. Um, sort of like, uh, kind of reminds me a little bit too of maybe like, uh, Will Smith and I am legend where, yeah, there's a big threat going on, but he's kind of just living his life and kind of dealing with the zombies at hand as he can, as he's getting through the life and scavenging and everything, uh, and the DLC for the game, uh, Dead Man, is it's a separate adventure. I mean, obviously the mechanics are very similar. You don't play as the same guy. You don't play in the same environments, I don't think. Um, it's really short. It's only about 45 minutes long or so. But I like the Dead Man DLC because it is a little more like Resident Evil. A lot of the environments you're exploring are dark or they're at night. You don't have as many weapons at your disposal. Um, a lot of those areas you use a flashlight or it's, you know, encouraged that you use a flashlight and anytime you have to use a flashlight in the game, it just makes things a lot scarier because you have to aim the beam and aim your gun and figure out, you know, what's going on around you while you hear these zombies sort of shambling though. Um, ammo is less, um, abundant in the dead man DLC. So that kind of makes it a lot scarier too, because you really have to try to get the headshots when you can. You can't just be firing off all the time uh, because if you run out of ammo, you're basically fucked because you can't punch the zombies. It's hard to run away from them sometimes based on the level design. Um, so, I mean, I don't really know what else I can say about this game, but I really like it. Every day, whenever I played it, I was looking forward to coming back to playing more of it, to seeing what would happen, to just exploring the environment. I like that it's during the daytime because it's not this grim, gross adventure. It's kind of lighthearted it's fun but it is i mean there is obviously some seriousness happening because it is like a zombie apocalypse type game but it doesn't take itself too seriously um it has you know the reload mechanics that are really dialed in the shooting is really dialed in um i like the way it feels um a lot of 
variation in weapons. Like I said, you know, you can find weapons with flashlights. You can find fully automatic pistol, revolvers. Um, I found a gun that looks like James Bond's, like, silly little, like, PPK gun that he uses. So, like, I used that for a while and felt like a zombie hunting James Bond for a long time. Um, but I like this. I recommend it. I think it's good, and it makes me happy. <laughs> I love that. This is good, and it makes me happy. That is definitely, like, the best recommendation I think anybody can give a game ever. Uh, I mean, it sounds legit. Like, it sounds like a real game, which is one of the biggest beefs I have about most of the VR games I hear about is where it sounds like it's a tech demo, or it sounds like it's a super basic-ass fucking simple game that is only made special by VR. <laughs> so, but you, what you described sounds like a pretty legit game, though. Like, it sounds like it would be a pretty decent experience, um, even flat. So, cool. I... Um, I also really give it props for being in the sunshine because I'm fucking sick of games that are just dark, 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 dark. <laughs> it's called video games for a fucking reason. And I've actually played a couple games lately where they're just really fucking dark and I can't see anything or they do some shit with your vision to kind of take that away. And it's like, look, I don't have time for this. Like I, I, you know, <laughs> I just, I want to see something. I want to see clearly. Let me get through your game. And I, I give it props for being brave enough to be put in full sunshine so right on i i give it props for that so cool sounds like a sounds like a winner if you're into vr yes it does and it really um speaking of the sunshine thing it really does there are sections of the game where it makes the most of being in daylight because a lot of the game takes place in these sort of um arizona canyon areas that kind of look like um I think it's called like Garden of the Gods in Utah where it's all of those like giant sort of like orangey red uh canyons and there's some sections of the game where you get up high um there's like a train yard level where you're you climb these ladders you get to the top of this train yard area and you really if you really just want to take a second you can just look around and really appreciate how beautiful the game looks because the graphics are incredible and i mean and it's just it feels so different than playing like a third person shooter on a console whereas in vr you really you know you're standing on top of this giant train car station and you can look at all these beautiful like orangey red um, canyons and the sunset and like yeah there's zombies down there that you have to kill but it's just nice to be able to take that in for a second and really appreciate how gorgeous the view in the game itself is and just taking that into VR makes it feel a lot different than it would if you were playing it on on a console or looking at it on a TV screen right on right on uh, still not sold but I absolutely <laughs> believe what you're saying and I support you in talking about it on the show uh, and we definitely have some VR fans. We got we heard from a couple of fans out there who said that they are really enjoying the VR coverage. So keep on keeping on. I will I will hold on my end and support the flat stuff. You can do the VR stuff. And uh, <laughs> like so many other ways, I think that you and I will do our best to cover a wide spectrum of stuff on the show. So cool, cool, cool. Um, one more game, and then we got to sign off. We got to get you some food. I got to eat some food. I'm hungry now, and I ate before the show. So you must be fucking starving, my friend. Um, Really quickly, I wanted to circle back and talk about Spider-Man. You covered it uh, pretty favorably a couple episodes ago. I had not played it at the time, but I got it from Gamefly. um, And my wife played it first, and she really liked it. My son played it for a little while. He kind of fell off it. And then I started playing it myself a couple days ago. And I'm here to give a full report. Uh, Let me give you my thoughts, and then we can kind of ping-pong a little bit. Um... So, I mean, beautiful game. I think the graphics look great. It's obviously Spider-Man, who is who I like and is cool. Web swinging is fun and solid and a good way to get around the city. I think that was really well done. Um, so those are the things I like. I think that was, I mean, overall, good. And I, I just to preface my comments also, I don't dislike this game at all. I don't really have any, like, major complaints about it. It's not like I'm going to trash it or anything. I think it's a solid game. 
Um, but I think the things that kind of tripped me up about it were just the open world nature of it. I think when I, I so you start the game, you get you get set into New York. There's a map. You have to like activate these map points, which already was like a minus one. Like man, fucking activating map points is so <laughs> Ubisoft from like five or ten years ago. I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is, okay, whatever, fine. Sure. So I activate the map points, and then I see, like, all the shit that's on the map, just all the markers and all of the little pips and stuff, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I just, I did, I was giving the game a shot, and, like, I did the story missions, and every time a side mission would, would crop up, I would go and do that. Um, I'm like, oh, you know, I'll give I'll give everything at least one shot so I can kind of get a sense of, like, what the game is and what it wants me to do. And it just just really did not keep my attention, dude. I just wasn't really into it. Um, I got a couple backpacks, and I'm like, okay, this is boring. I took a couple shots of some scenic points, and I'm like, okay, I get it, but it's not really exciting. I did a couple strongholds, which is just like wave after wave after wave of fucking goons. And I'm like, oh, my God, okay, this is not really that great. <laughs> um, I just, I was like, okay, so whatever, fine, I'll just do the story mode. And I kind of did that for a while, but... I don't know, like, it just didn't really, like, excite me. And I got to say, that it really cooled me off to look at the powers page and the, the equipment page and the suits page. And, like, almost everything is locked behind points. So it's like, oh, hey, there's the noir Spider-Man suit. That looks dope. I want to get that. Oh, I don't have enough hideout points or whatever. I need to go and defeat two more hideouts to get this thing. I didn't like doing the first one. I don't want to do two more. Or, hey, oh, I want to I wanna buff up my impact webbing. Cause that's a cool power. I think that's a fun thing. Oh, I got to do like 14 more crimes to get that. Ah, fuck. Okay. Well, I've already <laughs> done six. I got to get like eight more crimes. That's so like, you know, like just like seeing how much of that stuff was locked behind do this busy work was really like, it was like a bucket of cold water on me. And like, I think I, I would have been fine if you got more stuff just from the storyline or just, I don't know. Like I just, I was like, I just don't want to do this. I just don't want to participate in this. I just don't want to collect these items. I don't want to go back. I mean, like, the, the amount of stuff, the dots on the map is pretty fucking ridiculous. Like, when you have all the map points unlocked, you can see the whole thing at a go. It's just like somebody dumped a bucket of, of like, like glitter on top of a map. And I'm like, there's way too much shit on here. I can't, I can't do all this stuff. And I know that people were saying that they really liked 100%ing it. I mean, basically everybody in the world I know said they 100%ed it. And I respect that. If you got fun out of that, that's great. I'm not taking that away from you. I'm not looking down on you. I'm not judging you. But for me personally who i'm not really super into open world games that much in, th in the first place on top of how busy i am in real life on top of how limited time i have to play on top of i want every minute that i play to be something that's really worthwhile and interesting seeing how much of the game would require me to just do these activities which were not really that interesting in the first place was like mm. i mean cool if i was 16 i would have eaten this up like and just loved every minute of it but like as somebody who's 42 and, you know, is a full-time dad during the day and works at night and plus has duties to do outside of the home. I'm like, I don't feel like my time is best spent on this game because I can already tell a lot of it is going to be just doing stuff I don't want to do. So I'm not bashing it. I'm just saying that for me personally, not the kind of game I like to play and not a good fit for me at this point in my life. But I do think it's got, you know, Spider-Man's cool. It looks great. Web swinging's great. I think it's very solidly an open world game. I think it, it does what it needs to do. Uh, but that's just not what I'm in the market for. So I guess we're just going to part 
and you know, no harm, no foul. You go your way, Spidey, and I will go mine, and that's <laughs> that's where it ended up. So, what do you think, Corey? Did you predict this? Are you disappointed? Are you mad? You fine? How you feeling? <laughs> I mean, well, you know, to each their own, and all that. Um, I sort of was under the impression just from seeing some of your tweets that you know, basically some of the stuff you said that there was maybe a little bit too much, or that you weren't super getting on with the combat and oh the, oh yeah you're right you're right you're right i totally um, but yes. what i didn't expect was that you were just going to be like all right i'm going to stop playing it like i thought you would at least i don't know play through the whole campaign um but it looks like i was wrong yeah i just i just kind of don't care i just don't really want to <laughs> do anymore uh, you are correct though i totally forgot thank you for bringing that up i do think the control scheme is like ridiculous like it's a little bit out of control especially at the beginning i mean I was having a hard time remembering like, oh, it's square plus triangle for the grab, but then it's triangle plus circle for the swing. But then you hold the square when you're in the air for this thing, but then I'm on the ground and it does something different. And I'm like, dude, this is like a lot. And I'd haven't even unlocked all the powers yet. Like there's still like way more shit that I can even unlock to like complicate it even more. So what I ended up doing was just using the square button and bashing that for everybody, like knock them in the air and punch <laughs> them in the air because that's what I can remember how to do. And it's just like a lot. Um, feels very complicated and they really quickly um, throw a bunch of enemy types at you so you'll be fighting like a shield guy at the same time that a, a gun guy is shooting you at the same time there's like three brawlers and then there's like a rocket guy up on a ledge and so you've got to like dodge back and forth between all those I felt like the combat ramped up really quickly and I have the skill to do it I mean I was making my way through it it's not like I hit a wall but at the same time I was like I feel like I'm working really hard and I'm just kind of doing the same battle over and over and over and it's not really like that fun so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, maybe I'll come back to it, like, next year in the summertime when I got nothing to do and I feel like I want to just burn some time or something. I mean, I don't know. I just felt like it was not not enough bang for my buck considering how pressed for time I am. And that's partly on me. Like it's like I said, it's not a criticism of Spider-Man. I think it does what it needs to do. But, yeah, just not a good fit for me right now. So, I yeah, I'm good letting it go. And, I mean, to make to make things even more complicated... I probably would have just kept chipping away at the story mode, except we got a code and email, which we are not at liberty to discuss right now, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Mm. And that thing that we got for review is way more interesting to me than Spider-Man is. So that was a real big reason for me to drop it as well. So we won't talk about it now, but we will talk about it on the next show. I'm sure people will be in suspense right now, but if you look at a release oh, calendar, geez. I'm sure you can probably figure it stop, out. Stop, stop. You're going to spoil everything. We're not spoiling. No, we're not spoiling nothing. But that was that was the other big reason, because I wasn't on board with Spider-Man that much. And when we got code for this new game, I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm not wasting another minute on this. I'm going to go play this other thing, because this is, this is my jam over here. So <laughs> Anyway, so that's it for Spider-Man. Oh, also a shout-out to Cliff Goldsmith and Maya Sinclair. They were kind of having a spirited discussion about Spider-Man <laughs> with me, and I really enjoyed that chat. It was nice to, to touch base with those guys. They're very nice people, and they are fans of the show, and i um, glad to know them on Twitter. They are good people. So shout-out to Maya Sinclair and to uh, Cliff, good old Cliff Goldsmith. They're, they're good folks. So thank you for the Spidey chat the other day um i think this is going to basically wrap it but we do have just one more uh quick mention if you don't mind me answering this last uh question here cory no go for it uh we got a comment from kimberly h hello kimberly thank you for listening to the show uh she was asking if we were going to review darksiders 3 that is a definite yes i've been in touch with pr seems like things are a go 
as long as they send us a copy, we will be doing a formal review at Game Critics, and I hopefully uh, we will be able to talk about it here on the show as well. Um, are you a Darksiders fan, Corey? Darksiders 1 or 2? We talked about this before. I have never played any of them. Oh, okay. Um, Darksiders 1, I think, is definitely worth going back to. It is a third-person post-apocalyptic... Post... Yeah, <laughs> can't even say it. Post-apocalyptic... Sorry, excuse me. Post-apocalyptic game, which has a little bit of Zelda in it, a little bit of, like, action-adventure... Uh, it's a real good game, real solid. Um, Darksiders 1 is really good. Darksiders 2, I felt like, was not good. Uh, too big, too much, <laughs> too complicated, too much crap. Uh, but Darksiders 3 seems like a good course correction. Uh, so, yes, interested in that. We'll be playing it. Kimberly H., uh, you can look forward to at least, at the very least, a written review, if not here on the show. So we will be covering it. Thank you very much for your question. And if anybody else has any other questions, I'm sure that Corey and I would be happy to answer those. So... That's all I got, Corey. You got anything else before we wrap it up? Um, I don't think so. Uh, this has been a... We have a lot, just FYI, a lot of banter after the show proper. Um, so this has been a long journey of a show for us. Uh, I don't have anything which else. Is, which is funny, because we said this was going to be a short show. We always do this. We always <laughs> Every we time. always do this. Every it's time. Hey, hey, Corey, it's going to be a short show today. hope that's okay with you. Are you okay cutting out early? <laughs> Well, and four like hours later, we always have this too, where like, I'll be like, all right, I have my two games I want to cover. And then you'll be like, oh no, the show's going to be too short. I better talk about 18 games this week. Cause then we'll have a good length show. And then it ends up being like three hours long. Oh my God. We do this every time. So next week it's going to be a half an hour show. We're going to like, just make it, make it quick. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm good. If you want to bring it on home, sir, and we'll get you some food. Yeah, I'm hungry. So, um, uh, yeah, but that is it. Uh, talked about some games this week. Uh, Pizza Titan Ultra, Moonlighter, Arizona Sunshine, and Spider-Man. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more. But this is the end of the show. So remember, uh, if you have any uh, thoughts, comments, feedback, questions, games you're interested in us playing, if you're a developer and you're listening to the show and you want to send us some stuff to talk about on the show, by all means, uh, you can contact us in a number of ways. Uh, one of which is on uh, email, via email. We have an email address specifically for the show. It is sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com. You can also post comments for us on Game Critics' website whenever the show goes live over there. Um, you can also send us uh, comments, messages, what have you, on SoundCloud. Um, SoundCloud's not the best about notifying me of stuff whenever I get it, so uh, I... I apologize because I know a long time ago we got a comment and I didn't see it for like three weeks. So whoops, but I will probably see it eventually. Um, but the best way, if you want to get in contact with us, I would argue that the best way to do it is on Twitter because Brad and I are pretty active on Twitter. We do have a show uh, Twitter account. It is so, so video games or at so video games, if you will, on Twitter. You can also find us individually on Twitter, uh, which is probably the best way to get a hold of us individually, um, whether it's mentions or DMs or whatever. Uh, Brad, would you like to give out your Twitter handle? Yep, you can get me on Twitter, also on Instagram as well. It's my name, B-R-A-D-G-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, all A's, no O's. Yes, and my uh, I also have the same handle for Twitter and Instagram as well. It's also my first and last name. It is Corey Motley. C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. And before we sign off, as Brad kind of sort of alluded to earlier, we might have 
a special kind of a bonus episode coming out later this week. Uh, Brad and I are still planning it. It'll be kind of like, you know, magazines, they have um, like one-off issues every once in a while. Um, we can sort of call this a one-off so video games show. So stay tuned for that. We might be putting out a bonus episode later this week um, about something that we can't talk about yet. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, but Brad, do you have anything else to say before we sign off? No, man, I think that's it. But look forward to coverage of that. I think that'll be of very much interest to a certain segment of our fan base and very much of interest to us, I guess, which is <laughs> a very telling thing. Uh, fans of the show can probably guess, but look forward to that. And otherwise, I'm going to get out of here and get some food. Let's get you out of here and get some food and let's say goodbye to the folks. Yes. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. This is episode 104. And we'll be back probably with a bonus episode 105 or maybe it's 104.5. We'll decide on that later, uh, later this week. And the next week we'll be back with a regularly scheduled show as well. So we've got a lot, a lot in the works, just FYI. Um, but without semantics, this is the end of 104. We'll be back next week, later this week, sometime. We'll be back soon. Uh, but this, until then, this is bye from Corey. <laughs> and bye from Brad. See you next time. a couple things you want to go first you want me to go first how are you feeling uh it doesn't matter but i do i have like actual like real prepared like things have happened to me in the past week so i actually have things to talk about this week rather than okay why don't you why like, don't you roll you've got a prepared right. statement you roll and i'll just fill in later on as we go <laughs> prepared statement well the so the first thing um i'll make this is short i just think i saw this last night while i was surfing the interwebs and um i noticed that out of nowhere Lady Gaga, who is my god and prophet and idol of everything that's good and pure in the world, was tweeting about playing Bayonetta. Like, what the heck is that? For real? She was actually playing it herself? <laughs> she like, was tweeting about... I mean, she didn't. She wasn't, like, streaming on Twitch or anything, but she, she wrote this tweet that said something about how um, she just finished Chapter 4 of Bayonetta and came to the realization that Chapter 5 was going to, like, kick her ass or something, and then she... She hashtagged it like secret gamer girl. And I thought that was hilarious because I mean, I like the, there was like a, a lot of stuff happened over Halloween weekend. First of which being uh, Brie Larson, who is the new Captain Marvel. She went as Zero Suit Samus for Halloween. And so there's this whole kerfluffle about like she wrote a tweet or something about like wanting to be Samus for a Metroid movie. And of course, everybody's like, oh, my God, this is perfect. Of course. Like, why hadn't we thought of this before? So now I want Lady Gaga to be a Bayonetta and a Bayonetta movie. Like, how perfect would that be, too? OK, that totally explains so much because I saw like <laughs> th like so many times this happens on Twitter. Like, you know, I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to be. I got shit to do, but I do try to check in at least a couple times a day. And I came on and it was like bayonetta and then somebody was retweeting like uh i think it was hideki kamiya and then somebody was like retweeting something else and i'm like what the fuck is going on like what i like, clearly <laughs> it's like you see the impact crater of what happened but you don't see the bomb going off and so you're wondering like <laughs> what the fuck i was trying to piece it all together and i i could not figure it out but that absolutely makes perfect sense I actually saw somebody talking about the same thing too, and I was completely confused by that as well. I'm like, what is even going on? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But okay, thank you for filling me in. You are my uh, social media guru right now, and I, I am now fully caught up. So that, <laughs> that all makes sense. I would be amazing though if okay. So number one, I do find it weird when movie stars or musicians or something like 
actually play games or whatever because i i don't know what it is but like in my gut i'm like oh yeah bullshit you're doing it for attention are you <laughs> you know because like ice do you, you follow ice t on twitter uh i don't but i see a lot of his retweets and stuff in my feed yeah he's he's huge on twitter and he seems like a cool guy i mean we're not like friends in real life or anything but he seems <laughs> like a cool guy and apparently like he plays games like a lot i've heard that he's got like a whole arcade in his mansion and whenever the new game is coming out, he'll inevitably post something about whatever. I mean, it seems like pretty legit that he actually plays. But it's weird to me because here's Ice-T, who's like this like famous rap star from back in the day. And it still makes music. And he's on all these TV shows. And he's super famous. And like, it's just something about that just seems weird that like somebody who's like super famous plays the same thing that we play. And they can also enjoy it. I mean, I guess that just kind of shows how in America we kind of put celebrities on a different level than the normal people even though they are actually just human beings who have a different job than we do but something about that fame just kind of makes a weird disconnect so it's it's strange to hear you know lady gaga being like oh i'm playing bennett i'm on level four like what how's he although although like wouldn't that be fucking tremendous if she fucking streamed it though like that would be like phenomenal like i i don't even i'm not even anywhere near the lady gaga fan that you are and i don't really care about bennett either but like i'd be like oh my god it'd be like such a huge media event or whatever it would be like when drake was playing um Fortnite or whatever like all of a sudden it was like 50 million people were watching Fortnite, and i'm like what the hell's going oh okay he drinks on it okay well that makes sense and <laughs> It's so weird when those two spheres overlap, you know? Yeah, it is weird. And and it, it totally seems like, like you said, like it's kind of like some kind of like scheme or like paid promotion or something. Because I remember also whenever a, a while back when I was still listening to um, Chris Hardwick, who is a jerk, um, but his old podcast uh, for The Nerdist, um, he had Tom Holland, who is the new Spider-Man on a show and... I think toward the end of the show, they were talking about how Tom Holland had secured the role of Nathan Drake in an Uncharted movie that they're making. And like Tom Holland just kind of flat out was like, yeah, I don't really play video games that much. But like, I think he said he bought a PS4 and bought um, like the latest Uncharted just so he could play them. And I guess obviously like, you know, play them and kind of see the character and experience the character because he knew of it, but had never really played it. And he just like flat out on the show was like, yeah, I don't really play video games very much, which... I guess is believable, but I don't know. Hopefully he, um, I don't know, will familiarize himself with it before he takes on the role. Well, the weird thing is like, I mean, like, is that true? Actually, is he actually going to do that? Is that a real thing? That as far as I know, he is legitimately going to play Nathan Drake in an Uncharted movie. Wow. Okay. So that is, okay. That's kind of mind blowing on its own level. I wasn't prepared to process that right now, but, um, so <laughs> sorry, that's I'm gonna been file that. for like a year. So I'm sorry that you didn't know that. Has it really? I, okay. That shows how far <laughs> out of the loop I am because I literally had no idea about that. That is the first time hearing about this, but that doesn't surprise me. I am not, I am not the social media maven that I used to be. But the other thing I was going to say was, um, I know how busy actors and performers can be. I mean, I'm not an actor myself, but I work with actors fairly often. And I've, you know, been on set a few places and I've seen some things. And, like, it's like their whole day. Like, they're so busy all the time. And so, to me, like, seeing how much time that takes seems kind of, like, incompatible with how much time it plays to play a game on any (laughs) real level, you know? Like... I mean, it's just like, man, I look at the actors that I know and there's like, there's no way that they could actually like, how are you even playing a game? Because you're on set for like 14 hours and then you go home and then you eat and then you sleep and then like, where do you fit game time in there? It's weird. I mean, they, they must fit it in somehow. And I'm not saying they're not human beings, but it just, it just seems weird. Like I just, I can't reconcile that in my head, you know, this is my, it's my problem. This one's on me, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, and I guess on the flip side of that coin, too, um, like I had listened to a podcast a while back with Grant Gustin, who plays The Flash on The Flash. Yeah, yeah, I love The Flash. he and he had talked about how he doesn't really play like a lot of games, but he does play. I think it's like whatever, like NBA, I don't know, two K, whatever, or I, you know, Madden. I don't whatever sports games. I don't know anything about sports. So whatever sports games he's into, uh, whatever the newest, uh, you know, NBA game is. I think he said that he primarily plays like whatever basketball one and whatever football one comes out every year. And so he has like he. You know, he he was talking about how whenever he has off time in his trailer or if he's, like, not needed on set for a while, then he plays <clears> – <throat> he has, like, a PS4 in his trailer and will play it during his downtime. So, I don't know. I feel like from stories that I've heard, acting is a lot of, like, hurry up and wait as well situations. So, maybe he yeah, just makes yeah. the most of it by playing games in his uh, trailer and then just rushing – I mean, he is the fastest man in the world, so he can just rush back to set and do his scenes and then just, you know, flash – rush back to his trailer and play games that is true if it hits a day where you're not needed on set and stuff you can end up with a lot of downtime so i guess that makes sense that is correct so i don't know weird 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 but if she does start streaming something uh tweet me real quick and i'll jump on and we'll see what happens if (laughs) lady gaga decides to publish her her run through level six or whatever (laughs) oh my god that would be amazing i would (laughs) love to see a bayonetta i like i don't really like bayonetta that much i tried the first one and couldn't get into it but i love the idea of her as bayonetta so Fingers crossed that somebody in the universe will make this movie happen and that she will be Bayonetta on screen. I mean, the only problem with that is, like, you know, if you take a good look at Bayonetta's character model, like, it's not even to human proportions. She's got these... <laughs> her neck is fucking weird and her legs are weird. And if... She would look like a like somebody born in zero gravity and stretched out and bizarre. Like, I mean, if you stuck Lady Gaga in the appropriate clothing, you'd be like, ah, she looks like a, like a, like a, like a little person. Like, this doesn't look right. This is wrong. <laughs> Bayonetta is much more stretchy and... You know, it would it would be weird. They'd have to do some like hardcore CG to get her stretched out properly. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, oh <my laughs> that probably came out the wrong way, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so what else? What else you got in your docket today, man? <clears throat> well, I watched last week. We talked about. I mean, as usual, we talked about movies and TV and stuff. And I remember. Uh, we had a brief discussion about me like not committing to watching movies or watching TV shows and how I'd have yes. stuff I wanted to watch and. One of the movies I had mentioned was The Night Comes for Us, which was a, it's an Indonesian martial arts film. and uh, Oh, yeah, by the, ra- the Raid people. Yeah, it's not directed by the same guy, but it has a lot of the same actors in it. And I and so last Sunday after we recorded, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to suck it up, and I'm going to watch this movie tonight. So like, I went to Trader Joe's, and I bought some food to make for dinner. And I came home, and I made dinner, and I watched The Night Comes For Us, and I was ultimately disappointed by this movie, so oh, it's no, a little bit really? sad. I know. Yeah, I was. It's So you have, like, in the, the movies that these people have made, and by these people, I mean the actors, you have The Raid and The Raid 2, which were directed by Gareth Evans, and then you have, um, and then you have Headshot, and you have The Night Comes For Us, which were directed by ooh, who directed them? Um, by that uh, one guy. Yeah, that one guy. I don't know. Uh, I I don't know his name, but um, but they have like a lot of the same actors in it. They probably have similar producers and stuff. Um, and like the Raid Two, in my opinion, is like the pinnacle. I said this last week. It's like the pinnacle of urban martial arts films. It's just the best. And then. The Raid 1 is just, like, a couple notches underneath it. They're, like, neck and neck, but the Raid 2 is just better. 
And then if you go like about halfway down the ladder, like maybe Headshot and The Night Comes For Us are pretty evenly spaced there. And I was looking at reviews because one of my favorite things to do after I watch a movie is to look at uh, Rotten Tomatoes reviews and just read the excerpts for it and see if there's like anything I identify with. And there were like a few people that had written reviews that were like, oh, it turns out you don't need Gareth Evans to make The Raid 3 after all, because that's basically what this is. And I was like, did we watch the same movie? Because The Night Comes For Us is good, but it's not nearly... I've been trying to like untangle this in my mind since I watched it, because I can't quite put my finger on what makes The Raid and The Raid 2 better than Headshot and The Night Comes For Us. Because they're very similar. I mean, it's like somebody's in a gang, somebody's in a mafia. They decide not to be in the mafia anymore. They fight like a million dudes and shoot some people, and then the movie's over. Like, that's kind of a loose storyline of, like, any of these movies. And then it comes for specifically as about a guy who's in some kind of, like, triad gang. He does all these uns- all this unspeakable stuff, and then for some reason he has, like, a moment of... Like, I don't want to do this anymore. A moment of clarity. They're, like, gunning down these families on a beach, like, at the very beginning of the movie. <laughs> and, and this is, he's like... in the like, middle of gunning down families on a beach, and he's like, hold up. This feels well, wrong. <laughs> yeah, there's, like... There's, like... A, well, it's, like, a girl. There's, like, a 10-year-old girl, and she just, like, watched her family get murdered right in front of her. And so the main character of the movie... Uh, I can't remember his name in the movie, but he's played by uh, an actor named Joe Taslim, who is hot as fuck, by the way. Um... He, like, has this moment of clarity because it's his gang that is supposed to be his triad, like, sector that's supposed to be murdering all these people where he sees the girl. She's crying. She looks sad, obviously, because her mom just got, like, murdered right in front of her. And so uh, Joe Taslim decides to murder his whole hit squad and run instead of just, like, gunning down the girl with the rest of her family. He takes the girl. He, try, he like, takes her to, I think it's, I, I couldn't make the connection. I think it's, like, his ex-wife's house or something and so he, like, go, takes her under his wing, and basically the movie is about him trying to, like, protect her, but the triad gang, like, comes for him, obviously, because he kind of turned his back on triads and all So the story is, like, paper thin. And, like, the kind of thing that the movie has going for it is that it's, like, incredibly violent. And I'm not opposed to extreme violence in movies, as long as it's kind of, like, warranted. Because The Raid and The Raid 2 are also incredibly violent. I mean... The Raid 2 features a guy getting his head smashed in with a baseball bat. It features a guy's face getting burned almost completely off on a burner on a stove. It features a guy getting his head blown off with a shotgun. Like, it's, like, really violent shit. Like, really in your face. But it's all, like, done in a way that's elegantly directed, which sounds weird because you think, okay, a guy getting his head blown off, like, how can that be elegantly directed? But, like, the movie has so much buildup that the payoffs for those kind of situations and just the way that they're filmed and crafted and choreographed really makes the violence pay off in a really, um, I guess, like, satisfying way, which makes me sound like a sick fuck, but it is what it is. And I feel like The Night Comes For Us is just sort of, like, violence for violence's sake. And a lot of it is... Like, I couldn't, I can suspend my disbelief because obviously you're never going to have a situation in real life where there's, like, uh, like a martial artist who is so, you know, supreme in his craft that he can, like, hand-to-hand fight, like, 30 guys in one go and, like, kill all of them. Like, I can, yeah, whatever. Like, I can suspend my disbelief. But what I can't suspend my disbelief for is, like, there's a section in The Night Comes For Us where the hero is, like, in this office. There's, like, a SWAT team that shows up to kind of take him in. And as they, like, come to the door, they start shooting, and he, like, jumps behind the desk. 
it's like four of these like Indonesian SWAT guys unloading four magazines worth of like AK-47 or M-16 or whatever kind of uh, machine gun rounds into the room and the desk. Somehow, none of those bullets like hit the guy who's hiding behind the desk. And this is not like a bulletproof CEO desk. It's like a fucking meat shop in the middle of like Indonesia or something. So they like unload all of these bullets into this office. Somehow he is magically not harmed by any of these bullets. And then they go in the office and like arrest him and take him in. And I'm like, okay, like, like, okay, you, you just unloaded like 500 bullets into this room to kill this guy. And then suddenly when you run out of ammo, you have this like decision that you're going to take him in. Like, it's just like, it reminds me a lot of video game logic where it's like an uncharted you have, you, you get in enemy situations where they'll shoot you dead right there, you know, 500 times over in the game. But as soon as you run into the main bad guy in the game, he like arrests you and like puts you in some ridiculous trap or something. And it just like, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the movie's full of that stuff. And I can't really get behind that. And like the choreography for it isn't even that great either. Like a lot of the action choreography is a little bit like underwhelming. And there's just like a lot of violence that doesn't, like there's not enough payoff for what happens in the movie for violent stuff. Um, there are a few good fights. Like there, there's a fight between three women in, in this kind of like rundown apartment. And it's like these two assassins against uh, a f an Indonesian actress named Julie Estelle, who I love. She's like, I think Gareth Evans described her as like the Indonesian, like Meg Ryan at one point where she's this really like glamorous <laughs> actress. Who, what, like, what is her name these, again? Like, what, I'm gonna uh, Google it right now. What is it? Uh, Julie Estelle. It's uh, Julie, just like you would think it would be spelled, and I think her last name is E S T E L L E. All right, got it. So got she's it. like this super glamorous, like really beautiful actress, and I think she did a bunch of like rom coms and like comedies and stuff, like all overseas. And then Gareth Evans brought her in for the raid too, and she was Hammer Girl in the raid too. So she like fights all these dudes with hammers. She wears these cool sunglasses and like a leather jacket, and she had like never done an action movie before the raid too. And then now she's done three action movies with these guys in a row and she has a, a couple fight scenes in the movie that are great and I hope I'm like keeping my fingers crossed that they're gonna do a, like a sequel to The Night Comes for us and it'll be like her movie because she totally is overdue to star in her own action movie now because she's so cool and she's just like she like rides a motorcycle and has like a silenced machine gun and like wears like cool leather jackets and the night comes for us and she like fights really well and I, I she like needs her own movies. So that's like if we get anything from the night comes for us, I hope it's Julia Stell's own movie. Um, but yeah, ultimately it was just like kind of underwhelming. Like the story was lame, most of the fight choreography was silly. Um, it was really violent, but didn't have enough, like, buildup for that to pay off, and it was just kind of gross, and I don't know, I'm glad that I finally, like, actually watched it, because now I don't have to come back week after week and be like, oh, it's been sitting on my queue to watch, but at the same time, I watched it, and I was like, uh, like, that was it? Like, you know, here, there's another notch for a movie that's not going to be better than The Raid 2 for me. Ah, uh, well, you know, I, it's funny, I mean, I hadn't seen The Raid or The Raid 2, they're actually on my list to watch. Uh, waiting for a night when me and the wife are both in the mood for some action and then we're gonna pop those on and check those out heard nothing but good things and i did hear i mean it's funny you say that because i heard several people tell me um assuming that i had already seen the raid and raid 2 which i hadn't but they're like brad brad, brad it's this is just like the raid part three and i'm like i mean okay <laughs> if you say so but i mean so um, it's it's surprising to hear you say that you didn't think so but then again i guess not too surprising but that's too bad it didn't pan out that sucks but uh 
I guess I'll check that one off my list because um, I only have time for the best of the best. So maybe if <laughs> I had to go back to either if uh, so, I guess my question to you following all this, um, if I had to pick just one movie, like let's say tonight that me and the wife only have two hours, would you is it important to watch the raid one before the raid two? Or if not, is it better to watch just the raid? One? Like which one should I watch first? I mean, does if it matter, or does it matter? It matters if you're planning to watch the raids. I mean, the this is tough because you you can like if you really don't care, you can watch the second one and it works on its own without watching the first one. However, the first one like literally leads directly into the second one. So I mean, like there's stuff that happens in the second one where. You can, you can, it's pretty much its own standalone movie. Like, you don't really need all the background from the Raid 1 to watch the Raid 2, but it does, like, it is immediately preceded by the first one. So it's not like a 10 year gap. It's not like, oh, these martial artists grew up and they're old men now. It's like literally like one movie ends and then the second one kind of begins like an hour later. Um, but the Raid 2 is also really long. I think it's like two and a half hours long, so you have to prepare yourself. Wow, um, that's pretty long for an action movie, dude. Yeah, and the Raid 1 is shorter. I think it's only like an hour and a half or something like that. And I appreciate the Raid 1 because it it does tension and it really well inside this little capsule movie. Like it has enough it has enough story to get you invested. It has action. It takes a little while for the action to like really go kind of balls to the wall. But it's short and it's pretty concise and it has excellent choreography um but the raid 2 i think is the better of the movies but it's also long and it has a lot of story but it's beautifully shot and it has uh just uh, i don't know astounding fight choreography so i don't know that was a really like long answer but that's what i say oh okay all right well that uh that all sounds good. I'll have to figure that out. I mean, we're probably going to watch them both anyway. I've been hearing people rave about them for a long time. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, when we get a movie night or something, maybe we'll check it out. But all right. Cool, cool, cool. That sounds, uh, I was going to say delicious. That doesn't sound delicious. I don't know why I was going to say that. That's really weird. That's not, a, that's not an appropriate description. <laughs> I think I need some more coffee. I'll send some over stat. Um, I see one more thing on your, your list, photographing uh, Brad Galloway. Yeah, that makes sense. I can no. understand why people... No? No? You dork. Uh, well, which Brad is it then, Braytel? Because now I'm, I'm feeling a little left out. Uh, so this is about a guy named Brad Walsh. So oh, that person. guy. Yeah. That guy. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is... I don't even really know how to tell the story. So... There, there's a guy named Brad Walsh who is, he's a musician, he's a uh, photographer, he's um, sort of like an activist, um, he's a music producer, he kind of like wears a lot of hats, and he's not really that famous, like, he only has like 16,000 followers on Instagram, I know, I hate, you know, measuring people's success by the amount of followers they have, but it's like the fastest way to sort of like, you know, get people to understand maybe, um, He's, like, well-known in some circles, like, in, like, fashion and, like, avant-garde and music circles, but he's not, like, a household name by any means. And I uh, – something else I hate to do is describing people by, like, who they're related to, but there's really, like, not a better way to describe Brad Walsh, and I really hate to do this, but he was in a relationship 
for like 11 years and was married to um, a fashion designer named Christian Siriano. Does that ring any bells for you? Yeah, I mean, I've heard of that person. That's a pretty famous name in the fashion world. Not like I'm a fashion horse or anything, but I've heard, <laughs> clearly, clearly heard of that person for sure. Yeah, he, um, Christian won, I think, season four of Project Runway, and he probably went on to be the most successful person to ever compete on Project Runway. I think he's like the only Project Runway designer that's like a household name, and he has like a shoe line with Payless, but he, it, his big thing that he's been known for recently is he dresses a lot of people of color and a lot of like older and overweight or, you know, plus size, if you will, uh, women at, um, like at movie festivals and for premieres and stuff. Whereas most fashion designers only design for like size double zero, you know, six foot tall women like Christian designs for like, he's very inclusive, um, as a, as a designer, um, I hate to describe Brad Walsh based on Christian Siriano, but a lot of people know who Christian Siriano is, and a lot of people don't know who Brad Walsh is. But they were married for a long time. They separated uh, this last summer. So that's kind of sad, but it is what it is. Um, but Brad was in New Orleans for Halloween, and I've been following him on Instagram for a long time. And I uh, I saw him post some pictures of him in New Orleans, and I commented on one of them. And I, because I, you know, I'm at the point in my life where if if there's somebody in proximity that I want to like photograph, I'm just gonna tell them. Like I there's I don't have time to beat around the bush. I don't have time to like play coy or whatever. Like I'm too old for that and life's too short for that. So I commented on his picture and I was like, oh hey, how long are you in town? It'd be cool to photograph you. And he sent me a direct message like literally like two minutes after that and was like, hey, I'm here till Thursday. And I was like, whoa. And this was on a I think on a Monday. So very like casually comment on one of his pictures and then he DMs me like immediately and we, and then two days later, it was actually on Halloween on Wednesday, um, I went, he was staying at this like luxury hotel downtown with some guy that he was there with, um, someone I didn't, I had never heard of before. Uh, and so like I took, I like packed up some of my lighting equipment and just like took it to this hotel and ended up photographing him in his hotel room for about 45 minutes, which wasn't as long as I wanted to spend with him because I'm used to having like two to three hours with somebody when they're in the studio. But I also know that he's busy and he has a life and he doesn't know who I am. So I was very thankful for him to give me the opportunity just to go and see him and shoot him in the first place. Um, but it was just kind of a surreal experience because he's like, you know, he's kind of famous. He's like an artist. He's a musician. Um, he's in certain circles with really well-known people. And then for him to just be like, yeah, sure, come to my hotel downtown and we can shoot for a little while. It was just kind of a strange... Um, a strange experience, and he was, like, a little bit quieter than I thought he would be, but he also didn't know me at all, so I didn't expect us to get in there and, like, strike up a conversation, because I only had a limited time, and I was really focused on the work at hand, so I wasn't, like, trying to talk him up too much, which probably made me seem kind of dull and maybe awkward, but, I mean, if I only have you for 45 minutes, I'm not going to spend 30 minutes of that, like, talking to you about random bullshit. I would rather get down to it and, you know, get the lights ready and get the camera ready and everything, um, so that was kind of cool. And like, I gave him a few pictures already. He reposted one on his Instagram, which was kind of neat. And, um, and I mean, basically that's it. Like, I, I don't know if the, if the story has a moral, the moral of the story is like, I'm too old to fuck around with beating around the bush, about asking people if I want to photograph them and I will just ask them. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And this time it worked out. So that was kind of neat. Well, I think that's awesome. And I think that's exactly right because, um, Okay, I'm going to go, like, on a slight tangent, but it'll come back, I promise. <laughs> so, like, we've been um, talking about a lot of... like uh, So, like, so the true nature of reality is, I think, something that people don't grasp. And so 
a lot of times people like have all these barriers set up for themselves or they convince themselves of a certain thing or they think, you know, oh, this is going to happen if I do this or that. But really, like if you just go out there and try and do it like you will. I mean, honestly, I believe like you'll succeed more often than not unless you're doing something like, oh, I'm going to build a rocket ship to Mars. I mean, it's something like totally like fantastical. But if it's something that's within the realm of possibility, if you go out there and act like you're going to do it and think you're going to do it and try to do it, like, like you'll be surprised how often you actually do it. Like it, like people see that people see you making this move and like, it works, it works. So like one, I mean, one thing that's been coming up for me and the wife a lot, you know, we're really political. I'm not going to steer this too political, but just for like one second, um, you know, we talk about a lot of the awful shit that's been happening lately with Republicans and other uh, uh, regimes in other countries and, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? And it's like, there's this one phrase. Oh, God, I can't remember who said it. I think it was like, oh, I, I'm going to totally fuck this up. I totally apologize. I mean, it sounds so more, so more educated and more well-read than I actually am. And I try to put up this big front and I just, I don't even know what it's from. Uh, but somebody said a quote of like, it was, it was a dictator. It was a quote with a dictator who's a really well-known person and I'm blanking on the name. But they were like, you know how did you, how did you become this, this massive dictator? How, what was your secret? And he's like, no one stopped me, which is like, it sounds weird and kind of flippant and too simplistic, but that's actually true. Like, here's this guy who's like, I want to kill a bunch of people and be the ruler of this country. And I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to follow the social mores of society. I'm not going to follow the customs. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then like, it just happened and it happens so often. Like it's happening here in this country. It's happening in many other places. So it can be awful, but at the same time, I think it can also be really good because if you think you're going to go out and make something happen for yourself, you act like you do it. You think you're going to do it. You say you're going to do it. And like, like sometimes it comes together. Like it's amazing when it comes together, you know, like I want to do X, Y, Z for a job and you go out and start doing it. If you follow the proper path, like you'll get there or like, you know, like this, like dating or something like, you know, dating, um, you know, somebody that you think is maybe a little bit out of your league or maybe you're afraid to approach them because who knows what their situation is. But if you just ask, maybe it happens, you know, maybe it doesn't, but maybe it does. And kind of the same thing for you where you're like, yeah, here's this, you know, quasi famous dude and I'm just Corey Motley and uh, I'm going to just ask this guy if I can take him pictures and he doesn't know who I am. And that's, you know, I'm just like nobody to him, but who knows? And boom, he's like, yeah, sure. Come on over. So like just like like recognizing that the reality of life is like you got to make things happen for yourself and you're never going to achieve anything unless you try. And yeah, sure. Maybe you fail sometimes. But you will also succeed sometimes. And like just getting to that realization, like, I mean, to, and to bring it down to an even more granular level, one of my um, biggest realizations when I was first getting started at Game Critics was so before I became editor, when I was just like staff writer, Brad Galloway, which was a long time ago. <laughs> but there was a day I, I promise you there was a day when I was just staff writer, Brad Galloway. And owner of the site, Chi Kong Lu, was kind of running the show. I, I took over a lot of his duties as far as PR and managing codes and, you know, that kind of thing. Um but b before I did that, you know, I would be like, damn, gee, how do you get these codes? Like, what's, how do you even do this? And he's like, just ask. And I'm like, oh my God, like this light went off in my head. This light fucking went off in my head. I'm like, holy shit, he's right. All I got to do is ask. And like, it. I mean, and it seems so stupid and obvious and weird and like, like not a, not a secret, but like it totally is because... All you got to do is like find somebody's email and be like, hey, bro, like I really want to review your game. Would you send me a code? And like like 99 times out of 100, like somebody will send us a code like that's all that's involved in it. You know, like so like ask just just being brave enough to ask, being forward enough and just direct and to get what you want like that. That actually pays off like a lot. And I think that if more people realize that maybe, you know, more people would be able to make their dreams come true or would be able to make something happen for themselves that they want to happen instead of 
waiting for something to drop in their lap or instead of waiting for somebody to say it's okay or instead of waiting for something to happen, just fucking get out there and do it. And, you know, you're not going to you're not going to hit a home run every time, but man, you will hit. So anyway, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I think that's a perfect illustration and, and a perfect crystallization of that belief. Like you tweeted this guy. I don't know you. You don't know me. Can we do this? Yeah, we can do this. And then there you go. Like, it's amazing, right? Yeah, it definitely felt good. And like the cool thing, too, was obviously I sent him a link with like a little bit of my studio, um, like portraiture portfolio kind of stuff in it because um, I wanted him to kind of see because I'm also very understanding about like if I show someone if I come to you and say, hey, I'd like to photograph you and you have no idea who I am. Like, I will present my work for you to say, hey, if you like this, you know, maybe we can make this kind of thing happen. But I'm also like 100% understanding if somebody's like, I don't like this or this isn't to my taste or something like that. But what I what I don't like is whenever people don't say that to me, like, because there's a, there's like a, and I'm not saying this is the scenario that's happening right now, but there's a free runner, kind of like a pro stunt guy dude who's been in town for a while shooting a movie because a lot of movies shoot in the New Orleans area. And um, he was in town in like spring and I messaged him. I did the same thing that I did with Brad. I just messaged him on Instagram and I was like, hey, I know you don't know who I am, but I'm in the parkour community here. I take photos, blah, blah, blah. Like I would like to photograph you. I think you're a cool guy, you know, something like that. And and at one point he was like, yeah, I'll be here until next week or something. And so I messaged him back and I was like, hey, I know like you're like, I know you're probably really busy. If you don't have time, that's totally fine. I understand. But, you know, let's try to set something up. And then he ended up not getting back to me, which was fine because I'm sure he was super busy. And then he came back to town about a month ago to shoot something else. And so I basically just like re-upped the message and I was like, hey, you know, not trying to be creepy, but I see you're back in town. You know, we talked about linking up for photos at one point. Um, and he was like pretty, and he like messaged me back and seemed like pretty cool with it. And he was like, oh yeah, you know, I'll be here until like December this time or something. And so I sent him my portfolio and I was like, well, here, you know, here's a portfolio of my shots. Like, you know, let me know what you think, um, if you want to do anything. And I don't think he ever messaged me back or he, maybe he did. Maybe he was like, oh, thanks. And then like, didn't message me back. But like, I kind of wish... And, and, like, I haven't messaged him back since then. I haven't followed up or anything. But I kind of wish that he would just be, like... Like, if he saw my pictures and didn't want to do stuff like that, that he would just be, like, oh, this isn't something I'm interested in, but thanks, bye. You know, something like that. Rather than just, like, leaving me hanging completely. Um, but, I mean, yeah, you can't, like like you said, you're not going to hit a home run every time. But I'm just, like, I'm too... I'm too, like, past the point of caring about this stuff. Like, I'd, I would rather just reach out and ask somebody and then see what happens rather than not say anything because the worst thing that could happen is they either don't get back to you at all or they say no and like that's fine there's what like seven billion people in the world or whatever like if one person i want to photograph doesn't get back to me like it's certainly not the end of the world so yeah i mean there's no there's no problem with reaching out as long as you're not like creepy or weird or gross about it and i would like to think that i am none of those things about reaching out to people whenever i want to photograph them um so, yeah, but I'm glad it worked out this time with Brad. And I have more. Actually, I have a lot more photos I need to edit and send to him um, to see if he likes them or not. But um, I will probably actually probably do that while I'm editing the show. <laughs> well, right on, right on. That sounds like a really cool thing to happen and really cool story and a really cool life lesson for us and for all of our <laughs> listeners. Just reach out and make those dreams come true, people. You heard it right here on So Video Games. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, excellent, excellent. Um. As far as me, God, I have a lot to... I don't even know what to even say. I'll start off with something really small <laughs> first. Um, have you seen The NeverEnding Story? 
You must. Uh, I have, but God, it's been... It's been so long that probably the only thing I like physically remember from the movie is the giant flying dog. That's pretty much the only thing that I think of when I think of that movie. Absolutely, absolutely. That would be Falcor the Luck Dragon. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. Uh, right on. <laughs> we just watched it yesterday, so <laughs> I was I was looking for for movies to show to the kid, the nine year old, because. I have a lot of favorite movies from my childhood, and I wanted to share some of those. And to be honest, I think a lot of them really hold up. I mean, of course, the special effects are not as snazzy as they would be if they were made today. But if you can get past a little shoddy green screening or some awkward puppetry, uh, a lot of those movies really do hold up. And so Neverending Story was the first time I'd shown it to him yesterday. And it still holds up. Like, it's really, really cool. Uh, I, I think it's a great movie, perfect for kids, and still... Like, really fantastical and beautiful. The music is, like, amazing. Like, I wanted to buy the soundtrack, like, immediately after watching it. So it's really cool. But, um, so this is kind of an inside baseball, just really quick thing I want to just throw out to people. Um, at one scene in the movie, uh, the, the main hero goes to see something called the Southern Oracle, where he needs to find the answer to the quest. He needs to find out what's going on. And this is, this Oracle has the answer. But in order to get past the Oracle, he has, or in order to see the Oracle, he has to get past two challenges. Um, the first one, is two sphinxes, lady sphinxes, uh, and they're, like, facing each other, and he has to walk through them, and they shoot lasers at anybody who is not confident enough, and that's fine. And then he gets to the second challenge, and it's like a mirror where it shows you, like, the true nature of your inner self, and if you are happy with who you are, and you can brave that, if you, if you, you know, you don't have any inner conflict going on, then you'll get past that. Then you get to the oracle, and then the oracle looks exactly like the sphinxes from the first challenge. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, this is weird, because... Like, it's literally the exact same thing, and I don't understand. And this has bothered me, like, ever since I first saw the movie. Like, from for, like, the last 30 years or whatever. Like, every time I would see this movie, I'm like, why does it look like this? Because it doesn't make sense that the thing that you went to go see looks exactly like the first challenge, because why? Like, the second thing doesn't look like the end thing, and it doesn't look like the first thing. So why does the first and the third thing look the same, but not the second <laughs> thing? Like, it, I realize this is, like, a really small thing, but, like, as someone who loves this movie and has seen it, like, a bunch of times, it has never failed to really, like, puzzle me. Like, it I, it doesn't make sense. Um, and the only thing I ever came up with was we ran out of budget and we had to recycle the statues of the Sphinxes, which is a shitty thing to do because, like, everything else in the movie is so cool and neat and fantastical and beautiful to look at. It really hurts my heart that they probably had to recycle this because of budgetary reasons. So I threw it out to Twitter yesterday, and that was really, like, that was kind of what everybody said, too. I mean, I had a couple people who got back to me, and they're like, yeah, I read the book, and that's not what's in the book. It looks different in the book, so there's actually three different things in the book instead of what they did in the movie, and so it's probably budget. And it just, it just really bummed me out that, like, here's this classic movie. I love this movie. I think it's great. And there's just this one aspect of it that just really gets under my skin because it seems really obvious that it was, like, a budgetary shortcut they took. And I really want to just buy the rights to the movie and I want to refilm just that like <laughs> 22 seconds of footage to make it look like something else because it just, it, it bothers me, Corey. I just can't find peace knowing <laughs> that they recycled these things in this movie. So I don't know. Thoughts? Did I you thought, well, I thought whenever you finished the story, you were going to come around to some like realization like, oh, now that I'm an adult and I'm revisiting this movie, I finally understand why they reused it, but that is not the story that happened here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just a realization of like, oh, they totally took this cheapy-ass shortcut and like that's all that happened and it bugged me as a kid and it bugs me even more as an adult and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> so that is, ah, it's, oh, God, I can't tell you how much it gets under my skin, man. It really does. It really bums me out. But otherwise, that is a great movie. I love that movie. I do think it totally stands up 
and I was just as pleased with it uh, yesterday as I was 30 years ago, and my son really liked it a lot too. He was really drawn into it, so I think that is definitely um, one of the classics from my lifetime. But that led me to the discussion with the wife of, you know, I could name off probably 10 or 15 movies from my childhood that I think are absolute classics and that I would I would want to share with my kids or want to share with somebody else. But I kind of wonder, like, what are the classics of these days? Like, what, what movies are kids going to watch these days that are going to carry forward? Like, in 20 years, what movies is my son going to be like, oh, I love these movies, these are my favorite movies, these are classics from when I was growing up. And we were trying to guess, like, the wife and I were talking about it, and we just weren't really coming up with anything good. I mean... <laughs> It's really hard to say what's going to be a classic. And, of course, her good point was, you know, time will tell. You never know what's going to catch on in a cult sense or whatever. But I think another thing also is, like, I think the media scene is just so much different. The environment is so much different. So, like, you know, back when The NeverEnding Story came out or when, like, The Dark Crystal came out or when Goonies came out or something like that, like, you know, you could bet that, like, a lot of your friends would, like, literally go and see that movie because there was no other way to see that movie. So, like, you, everybody had the theater experience. Um, and it came to, like, VHS eventually. Um after a while and maybe you would rent it but like there wasn't like the same 10 billion media choices like there weren't 10,000 youtube channels there weren't there wasn't 24 7 twitch coverage of like any game you can ever think of there wasn't you know any video on demand you know download streaming it, it just seems like there's so many more choices and we were both kind of saying like you know it's it's not the same thing where back in the day if there was a big media property, you could be pretty confident that everybody in your circle would at least know about it if they hadn't already seen it or partaken of it. But that is totally not the case these days where it's possible to be fully engaged in life and being out and doing things and just having a 100% different kind of media and social media experience than somebody else who is your friend. So I thought that was really interesting. And I wonder if there is going to be at all any kind of the same kind of widespread classics in 20 years that we had today. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that, Corey? Um, I think about this a lot with music more than with movies, even though it kind of, um, I mean, music, it's absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Cause like when I think of, well, the weird thing about me growing up is like whenever I was growing up, my parents didn't listen to like music that they listened to when they grew up. Cause I know a lot of people my age, um, who are really in tune with like classic rock and by classic rock, I mean, you know, like ACDC or, um, you know, just like bands, like, you know, classic rock music, like hair bands and like 80s hair bands and stuff like that. But whenever I was growing up, I mean, obviously my parents listened to that stuff when they were growing up because that's what they had whenever they're growing up. But by the time I was born, my mom always listened to music that was current as we were getting older. So whenever I was growing up, I listened to, you know, all like the boy bands that were coming up at that time, like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears, because that was very like of my generation as we were going forward. And my mom listened to it too, because she wasn't really one to often listen to stuff that she, like she would listen to like Tina Turner, I guess is probably the, the most relevant artist that she, that was like big when she was younger, that she would still kind of listen to a little bit. Um, but I know a lot of people my, around my age who, were like just like really loved classic rock and and I never really listened to classic rock because my parents uh, like kind of raised us on what was current at the time and so there's like and, it, and it's, it's t super evident whenever I would play like rock band or guitar here with my friends because like a lot of those catalogs are classic rock songs and I never like really knew any of them um, and I think that I feel like I, I'm doing a tangent now where I'm talking about one thing and I'm going to try to bring it back to whatever we were talking about before. Go for it. You um, go. You go. Do it. <laughs> but I think about this with music of our time too because I, I kind of fall into the trap of, you know, what a lot of people's parents do where by the time you're probably like 20, 
Um, I think I read a stat on Twitter a few weeks ago, something about how like by age, I don't know what it is, like 25 or something, like people stop seeking out new music and they just kind of, that's like kind of the limit. Yeah, and they listen I've heard to that, I've heard everything that, they yeah. listen to. And I definitely do that because I, I mean, I'm always seeking out new music. Like, uh, I mean, not always, but I'm not afraid to listen to new music and I like finding new music, but sometimes it's kind of a chore to find new music just because there's so much out there and it's so accessible. Um, but uh, I fall back into listening to stuff. I still listen to stuff that I listened to in high school. Like, I usually, when I get in my car, I'll just put my phone on shuffle. And I have, like, I don't know, hundreds of songs on my phone, you know, that I've been accumulating since I was 16 all the way up until I'm 30 now. So I'll just play through them. And, I mean, I do skip around sometimes. But if there's stuff that comes on that was stuff I was, like, you know, rocking out to in my bedroom when I was, like, 15 or 16 years old, like, I still listen to that stuff today. Um, but it's it's harder to find classics just in the same sense as you were talking about with movies because there's so much out there and it's so readily available whereas you know 20 years ago there was like a lot of gatekeeping like there would be a new cd that comes out and you had to go to walmart to buy the cd you couldn't just download it on your computer you couldn't just turn on an app and stream it you like had to really put some effort to go go out and get it and there weren't you know 50 different ways to get it like there are now and everything happens so quickly, there's always so much coming out all the time, so much new music, so many new movies, and there's so many ways to get all these things that it makes it feel like nothing's really like timeless, I guess, in a way where everything just feels like it's kind of like riding the wave to come out and to try to get as much popularity as possible. And so it's weird for me, especially with um, with movies where... You know, you try to think about movies that, like Star Wars is a good example, like uh, The Last Jedi that came out. Like, I mean, that's definitely like a cultural touchstone movie because even people that you know that never watch movies, they would still go to the theater and see that just because it's like the biggest, like relevant cultural, like time spanning thing that is happening in that moment. And I feel similarly about the Avengers movies or like Marvel movies. And yeah, like they're just kind of like throwaway comic book action movies, but like, there's people that I know who rarely watch movies, but every time a new comic book movie comes out, they're in the theater. Or in, when a, an Avengers movie comes out that brings all the characters together, it's like kind of like a cultural milestone in a weird yeah, way. And, yeah. and I'm wondering, like, when I'm like 90, is like The Avengers going to be like a classic film for me? Like, is that going to be like one of the ones? So it's just like there's so much stuff out there that it's hard to know what will stand the test of time. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's kind of like that is kind of a portion of what I was bringing up was we have so like so 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was so much easier to get a cultural touchstone because there were so so many less choices, like so much um, so much fewer. Cho that is not the right word. There were so few. Fuck. English is hard. What am I saying? There were less choices anyway. There was. <laughs> God damn it. Why do people listen to me? What? Why do people listen to this podcast? I don't even know. I'm sorry, people. Word vomit all over the place. Um, there were, you know, just a certain number of choices. And, like, it was like if it wasn't on ABC, CBS, or NBC, like, it didn't exist, you know? Like, if it wasn't on one of those things. If it wasn't in the theater, then it didn't exist. And so if you had, like, only five choices of a thing during a given week, like, choices are pretty good. You were going to, like, see the same thing your friends saw. But now it's like we are spoiled for choice. I mean, I can listen to um, music and I can listen to my three favorite people and my wife will have absolutely no idea who those people are or what they sound like or where they're from and vice versa. Like she'll pick her top three music musicians that she likes and I will have no idea who they are. Couldn't tell you a single song 
because there's just so much diversity and that's much different than it was back in the day. Like, you know, kind of said about popular music and stuff. Um, but I do think, I do think that like the Marvel movies are, are legitimately like a cultural touchstone right now. I think that most people go to see those. They're huge. I think they've really captured like the energy and imagination of America. They're very accessible. Um, so I think that's really a good one. I think one of the very few legit cultural touchstones that happens right now, I'm trying to think of other ones um, and I'm kind of just failing. Like, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of things that America or the world all focuses on at the same time. That's pretty unusual. Um, to segue just a little bit, one potential cultural touchstone perhaps, or, you know, maybe not cultural, but like something that might come close to it, uh, is I think Fortnite and Fortnite today. I mean, everybody plays Fortnite. Almost everybody plays Fortnite. If you don't know what Fortnite is, then you at least have heard of it in some capacity. And today was um, one of their story events. They've just started doing story events. I mean, this is like a battle royale mode, one versus hundred, and it seems like there wouldn't be much to it. But they have kind of had this continuing meta narrative. And there were a bunch of challenges that they hosted over October, like the Halloween challenges. Um, specific set of tasks. If you did all those things, then you were able to see a special event that happened today. And it was a story event. You had to log into the game at 10 o'clock exactly. And if you were playing the game at 10 o'clock, then you got treated to a very like one of a kind, one time only special story event. Um, so I did that this morning because I did the Halloween challenges. I was excited to see what happens. And it was pretty fucking cool. Uh, there's been this kind of like glowing purple cube hovering over the Fortnite map for like a couple months and people have been wondering what's it for, what's going on. We don't know what's happening. That cube has caused all sorts of game modifying things to happen. Like it would change the gravity. It caused ghosts to appear. Zombies appeared. Like all this other stuff was like happening, like floating islands appeared in the sky that you could interact with. And so all these different game changing events have been happening, but they're like, yeah, yeah, it's all leading up to something. And so I logged in today at 10 o'clock to do the Halloween story challenge and the cube exploded. The entire world of Fortnite disappeared and everybody who was playing the game was suspended in space in an alternate dimension. And we were all just like floating, wondering what the hell is going on. And then like butterflies appeared and then we all kind of got warped back into the game. I mean, it, it's not like you earned anything and nothing really changed about your game, but I think it was kind of just a moment that you could partake in to say, oh, this is a big turning point for, for Fortnite. And I bring this up as a cultural touchstone because immediately after this event happened, like all of PSN crashed. Like there were so many people logged in, so many people watching this event that it killed Fortnite on PSN. It was okay on Xbox and switch. Uh, but anybody who was playing it on PSN crashed, uh, the entire network crashed. I could not get back into Fortnite. And then I was like, okay, fine. I'll play something else. I couldn't log into anything that was online because the servers were dead. And so I thought I was like, man, this is amazing. Like, here's this game. And so many people must have not only known about the event and played the game and not only known about it and played the game, but also did the Halloween challenges, which was like another level. And so many people logged in at this exact same time that they crashed this entire like <laughs> global service. I mean, that's kind of like a cultural touchstone, maybe not on the same levels as other things, but I think maybe we're going to see more of these slightly smaller things, but in certain circles, I mean, this was pretty huge. So I thought that was interesting and a very cool event, a very cool little perk for people who've been playing the game. So that was, that was pretty neat. What's funny about this too is uh, I saw because two seconds after this event happened, there were videos of it all over Twitter. So I was I watched like somebody took like a two and a half minute video of the whole thing happening, 
And I don't give a fuck about Fortnite. Like, I certainly respect it for being basically what you just said. Like, every everybody, if you're not playing it, you know what it is, like, pretty much. But I, I've i tried it for, like, 15 minutes, and it's not it's not really my bag. Um, but I still watched this video on Twitter because I, even me, someone who doesn't play the game, who's not interested in the game, I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know what the stupid cube thing was in the sky that blew up. So I was able to watch a video of it on... Twitter, so even people who don't play or people who aren't interested in it are still somehow sucked into this ridiculous Fortnite universe watching videos on Twitter to see what the magic sky cube does whenever it explodes. <laughs> that is pretty amazing. So you're a person who doesn't like Fortnite, has spent 15 minutes total in your lifetime, and even you knew about the cube exploding and about what happened. So that, I mean, that to me right there says... Fortnite's reach is huge, and I think this is definitely approaching like cultural phenomenon level. So that is super fascinating. Um, yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, so anyway, that was what I did this morning. Um, switching tracks yet again, I want to kind of circle back to uh, TV. I talked last week about Castlevania, the animated series on Netflix. You remember me bringing that up? Of course I do. I also saw you tweet about the show a little bit over the past week. You haven't watched any of it, have you? I have not. I need to. How long are the episodes? Are they only 30 minutes? The episodes are like 22 minutes or something oh, like that. Oh, dang it. Okay, I really need to watch it then because I love shows that are short and I that makes me want to watch it even more now. They are like they are super short and in the first season, there was only four episodes. So you can watch the entire thing in like, like less than the time it could take you to watch uh, a regular movie. How the so, hell did they establish an entire season with four 20-minute episodes? Uh, I mean, maybe they were slightly longer in season one, but there was only four and they were pretty short that we, I think we watched the entire thing in one sitting when it came out. So it was pretty quick. Uh, so I finished watching season two, which I believe was eight episodes. I heard a lot of people telling me it was way better than the first one. The animation was way better. They got way better production values, super good voice actors. And it was totally awesome. And I watched the whole thing and I'm like, are we even watching the same show? Like, or, I didn't smoke a bowl before I watched it, so maybe that affected my uh, enjoyment of the show. But, like, I got to be honest with you, man. Out of those eight episodes, I thought that, like, maybe three were okay, and five felt like complete filler to me. I was oh, like, oh, my God. No. These are slow. These are dull. And to be fair, I was talking to um, a friend of mine, uh, Defunct Games, on Twitter, and he was saying, well, if you like Game of Thrones and if you like intrigue, then there's more appeal. And I'm like, OK, maybe that's fair because I don't watch Game of Thrones. I'm not into intrigue. I don't like watching people, you know, spin machinations or plot and, you know, double cross. I mean, that's not something that I find very interesting. So there was a lot of that. And I'm not going to say that it was really well written. I thought it was all pretty simple and superficial. But that's that was the bulk of the show. And I wasn't really interested in that. And it felt to me like there was five episodes of absolutely fuck all nothing going on. Um, <laughs> but the other three episodes were pretty cool. Like when they start like whipping things and the action starts happening, like that was okay. And there's a few moments when um, music from the game kicks in. And that, of course, made things better. You know, just the nerd <laughs> factor kind of kicked it up a notch, which was nice. Um, but I have to say, I do not think the animation is good. I see people oh, so. No. I see people saying the animation is so good. And I'm like, really? Like, have you not seen animation before? Because, I mean, I can think of a thousand things that have way better animation than Castlevania. I thought the art, like the detail was lacking. Uh, I mean, it looked like like one notch above like a G.I. Joe cartoon from like the 80s. Like, I did not think it looked good. Um, many, many often or many times during the show, I was like, oh, that could have been smoother. Or, oh, that yeah, it just, it just wasn't great. Like, I wasn't thinking, like, wow, that looked amazing, you know? So 
I think that with a property like Castlevania with vampires and whips and vampire hunters and monsters, lots of opportunity to have some really over-the-top stuff, and I just don't think it got there. I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, I thought it was okay, and if you're a fan of the show, you'll definitely get some more out of it, but like, like basically every Netflix series, if they had cut it in half, I think it would be better because there's just so much filler. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was okay. I was kind of disappointed. I definitely didn't think it was like all that in a bag of chips like people were telling me. So <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, um, one final thing to mention really quickly. Um, I just read a really good book that I would like to recommend. A, a graphic Whoa. novel. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't read books anymore. Graphic novel. Sorry, didn't mean to mislead you there. Graphic novel. Um, so... As part of homeschooling and being the stay-at-home dad, I'm really starting to take my son to the library more often. We've always been library goers. I love public libraries. I think they're great. I think America needs more. They need more funding. I'm 100% behind uh, public libraries, for sure. Um, so we have a pretty good one near us. We've been going to it. And we just get like a bunch of graphic novels because um, my son likes to read those. I like to read them. I'm a huge comic book fan. I like to share that. So we've been getting just like whatever they have. And I got one that was actually pretty good. It was called Anya's Ghost. And it was written by, I believe, a Russian author slash artist named Vera Brosgal. I'm not sure if I'm... I'm probably not pronouncing that right. I, I apologize. <laughs> it's it's B-R-O-S-G-O-L. So I don't know what the Russian pronunciation of that is. Uh, but it was really good. It was about a girl who has some body positivity issues. And she's also um, feeling kind of not like she's fitting in because she's like a first generation uh, person. Her mom is a Russian immigrant. And so she's got like, she's trying to fit in basically and not be too Russian. At the same time, she's like a little bit overweight. And so she feels like she's not fitting in on that side. And what happens is she ends up, I'm not going to spoil anything here. I'll, I will make sure that you guys can enjoy the story, but she ends up meeting a ghost and the ghost becomes like a good friend of hers. And their relationship, I think is really interesting in a lot of ways and what happens after that is is I didn't see coming. I thought it was quite interesting and a good spin on the traditional ghost story. So I don't want to ruin anything. You can read the whole thing in like, you know, one sitting. It's a real good um, quick read graphic novel. The art was good. Coloring was good. I thought the writing was great. And I thought it was wonderful how she managed to incorporate a lot of real life issues that are that are things these days. I mean, there's a lot of people who struggle with body positivity. There's a lot of people who struggle with the relationships between men and women and the power dynamic that's there. There's a lot of talk about immigrants these days. It was a good book on many levels. And I think just as a story, I thought it was a very cool, great story and good for kids, good for adults. I give it definitely a thumbs up for sure. That was called Anya's Ghost by Vera, V-E-R-A Brosgall, B-R-O-S-G-O-L. Again, apologies if I'm totally mangling that last name. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was good stuff. And also, I recommend everybody go visit your public library. They have video games, they have graphic novels, they have magazines, they have computers, they have all sorts of stuff. If you haven't been to the library in a while, please go and check it out because they are great resources and we should support them. Hearing you talk about this graphic novel makes reminds me of what I thought... Um, when I thought about like theater for the longest time, because when I think of graphic novels, I think of, you know, like big titty anime fighting women, like robots and shit and Gundams. Like, I just think of like that, like my mind immediately goes in like an anime direction, like a manga direction with like, you know, ridiculous animation and like not proportioned, not well proportioned women and, you know, like over the top action, like all this stuff. And 
hearing you talk about this makes me think about how I thought about theater because whenever, for the longest time, when I thought about theater, I would only think of like big extravagant musicals and like spectacle and people flying through the air and you know like really like gay shit and I was like well that's not really what I go in for like at the theater and I'm talking about like plays and musicals and stuff but now I'm thinking about like you know graphic novels can be anything it's not all big titty anime women fighting robots like there's a lot of nuance in the category and the same thing goes with theater like there's so many plays out there that are not about, you know, musicals and spectacle and flashing lights and costume, ridiculous costumes and sequins and all this stuff. And it, it makes me uh, maybe consider that I should maybe look into graphic novels, like to actually read them at some point, um, rather than ignore them, because I think they're all ridiculous anime bullshit. See, that's a good point. And I think that it kind of goes to show that artists and writers and creators are capable of so much. I mean, if you look at video games, I mean, I think that you and I are a really great example that there's a wide variety of stuff in video games. It's not all, you know, Doom style or run and gun, blood and guts, or, you know, big tits or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know, we play like narrative stories. There are explorations of different perspectives. There are indie jams. There's AAA stuff. There is certainly a lot of big tits and guns. And if you want that, that's there. There's also a whole wide variety of stuff. I mean, there's, there's basically like something for everybody out there, especially if you're willing to dip into the indie scene. And I think that's true of like, you know, the same thing about movies. Like, yeah, you got your Marvel, you got your tentpole, you got your Star Wars, but then there's also like these made for a hundred thousand dollar teeny tiny indies or made on my iPhone indies, or there's all sorts of, you know, romance and stuff. I mean, same thing for graphic novels. It's just like a medium. And I think that anybody who doesn't get into it, I mean, even for myself, I was actually surprised at how much the medium has grown because I used to be into it back in the day when I was like working at a comic shop and reading comics all the time. And so the, the graphic novels we got at that point were basically just thicker comic books, but it's really grown and flourished and become much more diverse. I mean, there's like women's stories, there's queer stories, there's kids stories, there's, there's horror, there's romance i mean there's it's everything you know and i think graphic novels these days are just a way to tell a story rather than you know like you you don't you really just don't even know what to expect i mean i've read some really great stories that were just like stories about immigrants where there's no superheroes it's just the story of a person crossing a border and what it's like to go from one culture to another or like what it's like to grow up with a parent that doesn't love you or you know there's like there's all sorts of stuff out there and i think that the visual medium is a great fit for that so yeah, definitely get into graphic novels, check it out, go to the library. You'll be probably surprised at the diversity of stuff you find there. And if you go to a comic shop, uh, you will find like even more. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm constantly impressed at the, the variety of stuff out there. And I wish I had more money because I would like to buy one of everything and just sit down and read it all. But we can only do what we can do. But uh, yeah, if you haven't dipped in, check it out. And there's like a whole world of stuff to discover for sure. I will keep that in mind going forward. If you need, I can also recommend some stuff. We'll get you hooked up with some good stuff if you like. So, <laughs> and then re and listeners, if you're out there and you've got a favorite graphic novel that's not specifically about big tits and robots, well, if it is, you can send that to me. <laughs> and if it's not, also send it to me. But we'll send it to Corey too, and we will. We will. I would love to get recommendations um, from people out there in the listening audience. I'm sure that you know as much as I know, they know a lot more than I do. We can maybe crowd crowdsource this and get some really great recommendations. Maybe we could even do like a. Uh, a so video games graphic novel book club that would be pretty cool. Maybe we could oh all pick gosh. pick a book and we could all read it for like the month of you know January or something. And we'd all talk about. It. I don't know. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Getting here. ahead of ourselves this here. There much. we go. All right, let's wrap it up and we should probably <laughs> actually get to the the video games. What do you say, sir? Yes, we have banted our asses off, and I think we should talk about video games. All right, let's talk about some video games.